You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Welcome. My name is Tasha Donnelly, and I'm principal at Donnelly Criminal Law Professional Corporation in Windsor, Ontario. The firm focuses on criminal and housing law. Today we'll be talking about Her Majesty the Queen et al. First, David Sullivan et al. This matter involves two cases being heard together from the Court of Appeal for Ontario, that of Mr. Sullivan and of Mr. Chan. Mr. Sullivan attempted suicide using prescription drugs and in a psychotic state, stabbed his mother. Mr. Chan voluntarily used magic mushrooms and in a psychotic state, fatally stabbed his father and non-fatally stabbed his father's partner. Mr. Sullivan was convicted of aggravated assault and assault with a weapon. Mr. Chan was convicted of manslaughter and aggravated assault. Both accused tried to raise the defense of non-mental disorder automatism at trial and were denied due to Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code. This section limited the availability of that specific defense for violent crimes when the intoxication was self-induced. Mr. Chan's trial judge found that Section 33.1 did infringe Section 7 and 11D of the Charter, but the section saved and thus constitutional due to Section 1 of the Charter. The issue before the Court of Appeal for Ontario was the constitutionality of Section 33.1 and parameters around accessing the defense of non-mental disorder automatism. The Court ruled that Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code was unconstitutional. Section 1 of the Charter could not save Section 33.1 because it sought to hold an accused accountable despite not proving the mens rea and actus reus of a codified offense. This is in direct conflict with core charter principles. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against David Sullivan et al., for the appellant, Respondent on cross-appeal, Her Majesty the Queen, Joan Barrett, and Michael Perlin, and Jeffrey Wingarden. For the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, Michael H. Morris, Roy Lee, and Rebecca Sewell. For l'intervenant, Procureur General du Québec, Maître Sylvain Leboeuf, and Maître Jean-Vincent Lacroix. For the intervener, Attorney General of Manitoba, Amy Cutler, for the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Lara Visoli, for the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Noah Verniskovsky, for the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Deborah J. Alford, for the intervener, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, Inc., LEAF, Megan Stephens, Lara Kinkartz, for the respondent, David Sullivan, Stephanie Di Giuseppe, Karen, Hel- 
Karen Heat, I'm sorry, for the respondent appellant on cross appeal, Thomas Chan, Matthew R. Gourley, Daniel Rabitaille, for the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Eric S. Neubauer, for the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Jeremy Opalski, Paul Daly, Jake Badad, Babad, and Julie Lowenstein. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association, Lindsay Davio and Deepa Nigandi. For the intervener, Empowerment Council, Systemic Advocates in Addictions and Mental Health, Carter Martel, Anita Zighetti, Sarah Renkin, and Maya Kotab. For the intervener, Advocates for the Rule of Law, Connor Biltfell and Asher Onikman. Mr. Perlin. Chief Justice, Justices, Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code conforms with the principles of fundamental justice. It reflects a reasoned policy choice that falls squarely within the scope of Parliament's broad discretion to prescribe conduct as criminal. A, a person caught by this section is not morally innocent. That term, as Madam Justice Wilson explained in Bernard, cannot be applied to those who through the voluntary consumption of alcohol or drugs incapacitate themselves from knowing what they are doing. Intentionally or negligently becoming intoxicated to such a high degree is blameworthy because it is dangerous. But that's not what the section says. It doesn't say intentionally or negligently. It just says it happened. Well, that's, that's one reading of the section, Justice Brown. Our position is that uh, the section is uh, drafted uh, in a way that indicates it has an objective fault requirement. So, so take um, me right to the section and tell me, tell me where that is. Well, I don't think you're going to find it expressly in the section. In Indeed. Of what, the fault, what the fault requirement is. So it's what the vibe will... of the thing? Am I reading between the lines? What am I doing? Let's, let's just kind of cut to the chase here. Sure. On the interpretation question, um, our position is that um, as ordinarily happens with a criminal provision, um, or as often happens with a criminal provision, uh, it prescribes conduct without expressly indicating a, a mental element. That's, uh, that's common. And when that occurs, uh, pursuant to many cases from this court, including Lucas, 1998, when no mental element is stated, the courts read one in. Uh, Parliament has indicated in Section 33.1 in the preamble that an objective fault requirement um, is, uh, is what Parliament intended um, by use of language like standard of care and marked departure. I note that it's one of the few provisions in the criminal code that uses that language of marked departure. Um, symmetry, the general principle of symmetry requires a fault requirement uh, linked to the precise conduct for form forming the actus reus. And here that is self-induced intoxication that renders the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior. And when you have an objective fault requirement, requirement this court has held in many cases, Crichton, Javin Marty, Finlay, Hundle, Gossett, Neglick, um, where uh, um, there's an objective fault requirement, it must be read as, uh, as a marked departure. 
and and that's even if language like uh, um, in Finlay, careless carelessness is used. If that language of negligence is used, the court reads in a marked departure standard. That's what um, Parliament would have anticipated. That's why Parliament used the language of marked departure. Um, and in my submission, it's important to note here that no one contends that the element of self-induced intoxication has no mental element. Everyone agrees, the Court of Appeal agreed, that some mental element is required in the section. Some mental element attaches. There's disagreement on what that is, but nobody says that this is a, um, a pure deeming provision such that when this, this state of intoxication coincides with violence, it results in liability. A, a pure deeming interpretation in my submission where there's no mental element in the offense at all would uh, impute to Parliament a rather shocking inability to, um, to interpret this court's judgments like Crichton, which had been decided just, uh, just a few short years before the provision was enacted. Um, or in the alternative, as Mr. Sullivan suggests, it could impute to Parliament a deliberate, deliberate effort to circumvent what this court said is required to make an objective offense constitutional. And that's contrary to the presumption um, in Mills, that Parliament intended to enact constitutional legislation, and it's also contrary to the uh, to the parliamentary record, which demonstrates that Parliament was trying to de create a lasting solution, not one that would be struck down by the court. As soon well, as it well, I, I wouldn't have expected that Parliament was looking to pick a fight with the courts. I'm I'm wondering though if I could just pull you back because your your answer to my earlier question is premised on really the gravamen. Of the, of the, of the marked departure, being itself the self-induced intoxication. Is that a fair summary of what you told me? Yes. And and so I'm wondering if I could take you right to subsection two. And so it says, <clears throat> for the purposes of this section. A person departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care generally recognized in Canadian society and is thereby criminally at fault where the person, while in a state of self-induced intoxication, so we're already there, that renders the person unaware of, incapable of consciously controlling their behavior voluntarily or involuntarily interferes or threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity uh, of another person. And that suggests to me that really the gravamen of the marked departure is the general intent index offense. It, 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 that reading seems so plain as day to me that I, I have to invite you to disabuse me of that because um, I, otherwise I think, I think we're ships passing in the night here. Yes, well, I, what I would point to is that um, Section 33.1 sub 2 is a, it's a fault-creating provision. Um, 33.1 takes away a defense. 33.2 is Parliament uh, identifying conduct as blameworthy. And if you look at the marginal note, and I'm not asking you to put too much weight onto this, um, it indicates that... Um, 33.1 sub 2 provides criminal fault by reason of intoxication. And that's the blameworthy act. Yeah, that, but I, um, I, I want to pull you back to what it actually says. Um, I asked you about the text, and you said, let me show you a marginal note. I, I, I want to talk about the text. 
criminally at fault where the person, while in a state of self-induced intoxication, so it's not the, it's not the becoming intoxication, intoxicated, while in a state of self-induced intoxication, interferes or threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person. Why does a plain reading of the section not show us that the gravamen of the marked departure is is the index offense? Well, the act of violence, if the act of violence is read as what has to be a marked departure, in our submission, the provision could never apply in that um, uh, for conduct to constitute a marked departure, you have to be conscious. Okay, so you're taking me to consequences now, but, but let's just look at the text, right? Yes. While in a state of self-induced intoxication interferes or threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, um, Mr. Perlin, I, I, I need to hear from you on that precise point. What is it in the text that allows you to sort of make the interpretational argument that you're making? Well, our, our interpretation of the provision relies on a variety of factors, including the preamble, which is uh, an important tool for interpretation of the provision. And the preamble um, um, ascribes in, I, we've numbered the paragraphs in our condensed book, uh, paragraph seven, um, Parliament considers it necessary to legislate a basis of criminal fault in relation to self-induced intoxication and general, general intent offenses involving violence. I'm not suggesting, Justice Brown, that your textual interpretation is unavailable. Um, what I would go back to is a, a series of, uh, of uh, strong presumptions of interpretation of penal statutes. And the inter- interpretation that... Um, that you're ascribing to this, Justice Brown, I think goes further than the respondents would say, further than the Court of Appeal said, in that everyone agreed that some mental element must be associated as a matter of basic criminal interpretation with the act of self-induced intoxication. I'd refer to to that term in particular, though, self-induced intoxication. What does that mean? The um, The text of the provision doesn't answer that question. And in our submission, that's the uh, that's, for lack of a better term, the linguistic hook that we'd ask you to rely on. One last we question, both... then I'll leave you alone for a sure. while. If I don't agree <laughs> with your interpretation, um, do you have any? I mean, does do all your arguments on constitutionality hang on that interpretation? If I don't accept it, um, is this provision? Uh, is is it impossible? Is it? Are we into section one? I guess is the question. And the answer is yes. If Thank the uh, if the provision does not uh, include a fault on a marked departure standard, in uh, in the way that that analysis applies, as described in Crichton, Hundle, uh, Beattie, for example, um, then the provision uh, imposes liability in the absence of. Uh, necessary minimum fault requirement. And we're into section one. And uh, uh, my colleague, Ms. Barrett, is going to address you on, on section one. Thank you. So, counsel, I have a question for you. Uh, so here you say that uh, section 33.1 uh, applies only to cases of blameworthy intoxication. But you seem to have taken a different position before the Court of Appeal. 
when I read paragraph 89 of the majority reasons? Well, I, I, I don't want to provide evidence here, and you don't have the transcript of the, of the Court of Appeal hearing before you. What I can tell you is that the issue arose in the context of a question from Justice Pachago, and uh, we provided a series of responses. Um, and if I recall correctly, the last one was that the chalk and Bickberg interpretation of the mental element for self-induced extreme intoxication wasn't binding on that court. It's certainly not binding on this court. But, um, but more importantly, um, our analysis in the Court of Appeal, the position that we were taking, uh, simply assumed the correctness of um, the then leading cases on the mental element. Justice Pachaco's questioning um, uh, prompted us to, uh, to take a closer look at the issue before we uh, came before this court. And uh, our analysis, particularly the requirement, the fact that uh, marked departure must be read in to offenses predicated on objective fault, uh, led us to take the position that we're taking before you now. Um, and in my submission, it's not prejudicial in any way to, uh, to any of the, uh, uh, to either of the respondents to take this position before you. Thank you. Do Mr. I take Mr. It, Mr. Per Excuse me, Mr. Perlin, do I take it that when you talk about intoxication in this section, you are effectively reading in excessive intoxication of a kind that would render you either incapable of forming any intent or that would sort of disable you from having any control over your conduct. So it's clear that you would say that when the section refers to intoxication, self-induced, uh, you're referring to the voluntary consumption, I think, uh, of intoxicants. Now here's where I want to question you on a first read-in on mens rea, <laughs> you know, knowing or in reckless disregard that the consumption of these intoxicants, intoxicants could render them uh, unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior, i.e. excessive intoxication. Do I have that right, that you would read that in? Uh, We're almost. Read in. Sorry. Sorry, that's almost exactly right. All the way, although the way that uh, you framed it, Justice Maldaver, was uh, intent. I, I, I think you said intent, recklessness, or willful blindness. Um, and no, we say it's on. Said knowing in reckless disregard. You may want to say knowing, or um, um, putting it into a, an objective basis. Yes. Uh, or ought to have known. I don't know what you yes. what you would ask us to read in. I'm, so I guess I'm asking you, what is it that you would have us read in? Yes, um, that's almost entirely um, our position. Our position is that the act of ingesting an intoxicant must constitute a marked departure from, uh, from the conduct of a reasonably prudent person. And um, the marked departure analysis requires the court to um, consider not only that the conduct is something that a reasonably prudent person would not do, but... Um, uh, but because the conduct is a marked departure, because um, it involves risk taking, the risk, um, uh, the prohibited state, the prohibited dangerous state in section 33.12 is intoxication that renders the person unaware of or, a cap or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior. That's a text of 33.12. So we say the act of ingestion must constitute a marked departure. And the relevant risk for the court to consider whether the person 
knew that risk or ought to have known that risk um, based on the facts uh, known to the person in the circumstances is the risk of becoming intoxicated to the degree described in the section. You know, there's, there's, there's a looseness about this that causes me a great deal of concern, and I don't know whether I can resolve it simply by looking at the words of the statute. I mean, a uh, long time ago, when I represented clients of modest means, you'd go and you'd speak to someone and they'd say, well, the last thing I remember was I was drinking at so-and-so's house. The next thing I remember, I, I woke up in the, in, in the jail, right? And in between, it's just a blank. And you have to say, well, you know, you were charged with having broken into the service station or something. It's not an uncommon occurrence for, for you know, um, young lawyers to have those kind of clients. So that might, might be called blackout drinking. What, what we're, it seems to me we're dealing with here is something that's quite different. I mean, the, you know, the two individuals here, one, one person said, you know, I have to attack you because you're an alien. I mean, that's completely delusional. And the other one was, you're the devil, and, and, and God has told me, you know, to destroy you or something along these lines. Right? Or you can imagine somebody having hallucinations, and, 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 you know, there's a person in front of them, but they believe it's a giant snake or something. And they're just defending themselves because of that. I mean, these are not the same phenomena, but they're kind of mixed up. And, and to me, there's a looseness about this that is problematic because someone who, 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 you know, just drinks alcohol to excess and wakes up the next morning having broken into the service station is different from the person who kills their mother because they believe they're from another planet. Yes, and I, uh, and I agree with that. And um, what the evidence before Parliament indicated is that um, you know, blacking out is not the same as entering an involuntary state or a state where you lack capacity to form intent. And what the section is concerned with is that kind of incapacity. It's not concerned with uh, drinking and uh, not forming memories, waking up, not recalling what you did. It's concerned with uh, intoxication that is self-induced, that renders the person unaware of their behavior at the time it's occurring, or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior at the time that it's occurring. I want to be very precise and um, make sure that I'm clear on what we say this section requires. And that's going to be a question for the uh, um, for the trier of fact in a in a given case whether the whether the form of intoxication can do that. And I think what we have with um, um, with uh, some hallucinogenic drugs or with hallucinogenic drugs in, in general is that risk of the person becoming unaware of their behavior. A person who is hallucinating, that means they're perceiving something that uh, is not true, something that does not exist, and is delusional, that means believing um, this false perception, uh, is un can easily become unaware of their behavior. Um, so that squarely falls within the ambit of the section in my submission. Somebody whose conduct is driven by delusions, um, we would say, um, or somebody who believes that the, uh, that the individual is a devil, um, for example, um, that's, uh, that's an incapacity that's a little bit different. Um, what the court held in chalk 
at page 1321 is that um, or sorry, a mental state where the individual is, uh, lacks capacity to appreciate the nature and consequences of one's actions. That's something that deprives the individual of the capacity to form intent or act voluntarily. Now, that could be a person uh, stabbing somebody, believing that what they are doing is cutting a loaf of bread. What the court said in that case, that's something that deprives a person of capacity to, to form the intent. But if a person is uh, stabbing somebody, believing that it is uh, the right thing to do, they're aware of their actions, they're, they're aware of the fact that they're stabbing somebody, but it's driven by delusions, um, that is something that deprives a person uh, the capacity to appreciate the moral wrongfulness of their conduct. And th that the court held in chalk, again, page 1321, is something that does not deprive the individual of capacity to, uh, capacity to form general intent. So would it be, um, a, would it be a fair summary of, of your argument then that the rules of fundamental justice are satisfied by showing that this state, either drunkenness or other forms of intoxication was attained through the accused's own blameworthy conduct. Yes, yeah, that that's definitely one way to put it, and we would. And that's how Justice Sapinka put it in his dissent in Davio. And so, what I'm interested in knowing from you now, Mr. Perlin, is how how is what you're saying about the constitutionality of 33.1 in respect to section 7 and 11D substantially different than what Justice Sapinka said in Davio? Well, I, 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 I might answer this by saying how this is different from what the majority addressed in Davio. We do think it's quite similar to the, uh, the conduct that Justice Sapinka was describing as blameworthy conduct in Davio. But the fundamental difference between what you have before you today and what this court had before it in Davio is that um, the Leary rule was a common law rule that permitted courts to substitute the essential elements of um, a substitute proof of intoxication for what Parliament had said were essential elements. And what you have before you now is Parliament has indicated that this is a basis of fault. And, um, but, this but, is but, a there's a, but there's a statement, a categorical statement of law in Justice Sapinka's dissent that um, it actually speaks of a general rule. Um, and I, I just can't escape the suspicion, again, I invite you to disabuse me of it, that Parliament has codified the dissent in Davio. And uh, I don't, uh, I don't agree. I don't disagree with that in general terms. Parliament has identified as blameworthy what the court, the dissenting justices in Davio said was blameworthy. But Parliament has done this in a way that is consistent with the principles of fundamental justice. The problem, so Davio, the majority reasons are based on um, the analysis of Justice Wilson and Bernard, and she said the problem with uh, self-induced extreme intoxication is not a problem of moral innocence or moral blameworthiness. The problem is substitution. We're doing, the court was doing what um, 
uh, or imposing a liability in circumstances where Parliament said that liability was not appropriate or where Parliament had not codified a right to liability. So th the respondent's core complaint about Section 33.1 is that it replicates what this court held was unconstitutional in Davio. And I would like to disabuse you of this. The charter breaches in Davio were based solely on the fact that the Leary rule was a common law rule. And by enacting Section 33.1, Parliament corrected the problem identified in Davio. The court described the most uh, vehement and cogent criticism of the Leary rules is that it substituted proof of drunkenness for proof of the requisite mental element. And the analysis was based on White and Viancourt. Um, for, uh, most of the analysis uh, is an application of those principles, the, the, the principle from those cases. That is that it, if an element is essential because the constitution or parliament says so, liability cannot be imposed in the absence of that element or a substitute element that inexorably proves the essential element. The court was analyzing an offense in Davio, sexual assault, that was constructed using a typical model for criminal liability, intent with respect to the, uh, excuse me, an act voluntarily performed, accompanied by contemporaneous mens rea, and the mens rea amounting to intent with respect to the uh, performance of the act. But the court highlighted that this model applied, quote, unless the legislator provides otherwise. And that's on page three, um, sorry, tab three, page 11 of our condensed book. The signal uh, from this in my submission is that the if the legislator provides otherwise, the test for substituted essential elements must be performed in relation to the form of liability constructed by the legislator. So every charter problem can and should be understood as flow flowing from the manner in which the Leary rule deviated from that standard model. model. First, there's a substitution problem. Leary said that self-induced intoxication uh, was a sufficient substitute when intent or voluntariness or both were absent. So that is not what section 33.1 does. 33.1 says uh, it retains the, other, the normal route to liability, intentional application of force, but it says if you don't have an intentional application of force, um, uh, self-induced intoxication is another sufficient mental element. Um, so it's not Parliament saying that self-induced intoxication proves intent. It's Parliament saying that self-intoxication and intent with respect to the act are two different routes to get there. And the other problems are all about um, linking um, the act and the fault or the act and the voluntariness or the act, uh, the fault mirroring the act. And all of those problems while they existed in, in, in the Leary rule, because you've got intent, voluntariness, um, with respect to an act of ingestion of intoxicants that's separate from the act of violence, under 33.1, all of those problems are corrected because you have uh, an intentional ingestion of a substance. Um, the voluntariness is linked to that act. And the mental element mirrors the prohibited act. So what sorry, is sorry this is where I'm still having trouble with what you're saying. Uh, it's, surely it's not just the use of a drug that we're looking at. I mean, you yourself admit quite properly so, I would have thought, that if your drink is spiked, you have no idea you're consuming a drug. I mean, it's not meant to cover that. 
So my question, I come back to you, what is it that the accused has to know or ought reasonably to know about the drug that he or she is consuming? And that I don't see in this provision. You won't find that in the text of the provision. Where you will find that is in the application of uh, uh, the Mark Departure Test, basic principles of the Mark Departure Test. So there has to be a risk, a prohibited state. And what Parliament has specified as the prohibited state is the Sorry, The Mark Departure Test just talks about the end result. It talks about extreme intoxication. My question to you is what does the accused have to know, or as you put it, ought to know, maybe it's got to even be the more reckless in, in, uh, standard, about the drug. Surely, they've got, surely you've got to bring that home some way. Yes, yes. Well, how are you the, doing it in this provision? The, uh, it requires self-induced intoxication in the context of um, drinking and driving, other offenses relying on self-induced intoxication. It's always required some kind of knowledge of the intoxicating. Well, hold, of the hold on, hold on. Impaired driving, you know, impaired driving causing death or impaired driving causing bodily harm. If you remove the impairment from, from the facts, um, you don't have an offense because driving in an unimpaired state is not an offense. Here, if you remove the impairment from the offense, you still have an offense, assuming you can show mens rea. So I, they, they, we, I just don't think, I, I, I mean, I guess this depends on your, all this rests on your interpretation of, you know, importing um, an, a, a, some kind of foreseeability or some kind of negligence standard. But I, I want to pull you back to that because I, I wonder if you're not trying to relitigate Bouchard Lebrun on this point, where Justice LaBelle says 33.1 applies, where three conditions are met, intoxication, right? Yes. self-induced, and departure from the standard of reasonable care to be expected by threatening or interfering with the bodily integrity of another person. Um, does that not decide the contents of 33.1? In our submission, it does not. And um, Bouchard-Lebrun was a case that was about Section 16. There was a subsidiary issue on whether liability attached under Section 32.1, but the issue, uh, to my knowledge, from reviewing materials in the record... But he said not, it. He said it. He said it and referred to um, and cited the uh, then-leading cases, Chalk and Vicberg, generally. Now, I, in my submission, this was a, merely the court applying the law that no one had asked it to consider and not a considered Well, well I, I, I agree with you, actually, that I don't think foreseeability rose on those facts. But he clearly addressed it all the same. I mean, paragraph 91 is, is quite clear. Right? And he says there's no distinction between normal effects and abnormal, that is, I guess, unforeseeable effects. Right? But, this is what he writes. No distinction based on the seriousness of the effects of self-induced intoxication is drawn in this provision. And Justice Pachaco inferred from that that uh, the provision was intended to capture abnormal effects, but that, uh, that analysis rests on two flawed premises. First is that um, um, 
In Bouchard-Lebrun, the court rejected the distinction between normal and abnormal effects of the intoxicant. There's no comment on whether the, um, the provision applies to abnormal effects because the court disagreed that there is such a thing. And the second flaw is that Justice LaBelle didn't use the word abnormal to mean in unforeseeable. His comment that 33.1 uh, is not limited to the normal effects of intoxication is not about how foreseeable or common an effect is. He was responding to the appellant's argument that some effects are so extreme that they should fall under section 16. He's saying, uh, he's talking about severity, not foreseeability. And uh, if the court were to conclude that the issue had been resolved in bouchard Lebrun, we would ask the court to re revisit that issue. There was no sustained analysis of the mental element required under the provision. I just Mr. Want to Mr. Mr. Perlin, just before you go on, because you gave me the example of, well, when I asked you, what is it that the person has to know or ought to know, you said, well, impaired driving. You are not talking about the kind of intoxication that would render you liable for impaired driving. You are talking about a particular form of intoxication that renders you a zombie. Let's just put it in simple terms. Now, yes. surely there has to be something yes. that we can look to in this provision somewhere or have to read it in. What is it that the accused has to know about the this accused... drug that would cause the accused to know or should know that if you consume it, you know, in big quantities, you'll become a zombie, as opposed to just lying on the ground and getting sick. Yes. To me, that's and critical. I, I, and I agree. That is critical. And what's required is that in the circumstances known to the accused, that the accused, based on whatever those circumstances are, that they would appreciate a risk that the consumption in the manner that it's being consumed and the quantity that's, it's, that's being consumed would render the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior. Okay. If, the person, if the person could not reasonably anticipate that risk based on the nature of the substance, its uh, identity, the circumstances surrounding its consumption, if it happens to result in extreme intoxication, that's not criminal. But if a person, a reasonable person, in the circumstances of the accused would appreciate a risk of entering that state, that's the blameworthy state that the provision aims to deter and criminalizes. And I just have, um, I did intend to address you as well on the section 52.1 issue. But before you go there, Mr. Perlin, I have sure. a question. Sure. Because um, I think your submissions, the interpretation you're asking us to take, not only strains what, you know, a marked departure means, because subsection 2 actually sets out what it means and talks about the end result. But it seems to me that what you're urging us to find is that this provision creates a new offense, that it creates, you know, like violence where there's self-induced intoxication to such a degree, which requires yes. us not only to read in the mens rea, but then how do we deal with the language that says it's not a defense? So I, I guess well, the interpretation you're asking us to, 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 to make, to, to read this as a new offense that's been created, doesn't rest easily not only with the language of Mark departure and with the absence of any reference to fault, but also with the fact that on its face, it talks about a defense that's not available. Well, I'd make 
two points. First, the text of the provision does refer to departure from the standard of care and marked departure. And uh, that's a signal as to the mental element that should be read in. But second, on the text of the provision, 33.1 sub 1 says it is not a defense. Uh, 33.1 sub 2 is a fault-creating provision. Um, criminal fault by reason of intoxication, again, referring back to the preamble. So section 33.1 does both. It eliminates a defense and it creates a mode of liability. I don't think I'll uh, get to the uh, what's the issue. Mr. Perlin, what's the sentence then for this new offense? The sentence um, is based on the... Um, based on the uh, offense of violence which is charged. And I'd note that this is, a, um, this is a, 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 a compromise provision in that Parliament indicates that liability is required. But for even the most serious general intent offenses of violence, there, uh, there is no minimum sentence. Uh, we had indicated in our factum that manslaughter with a firearm has a minimum sentence, but that's a specific intent element of that, that offense. So there is no minimum sentence for any um, uh, general intent offense of, of violence. Um, so discharges and suspended non-custodial sentences are within the discretion of the court to impose. In that regard, the provision accords with the principle that unintentional harm should be treated less, uh, uh, as less blameworthy than intentional harm. In the case of and either I, Mr. Sullivan or Mr. Chan, was there any evidence on the record that they accepted or knew of the risk? Uh, yes, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chan, uh, as he concedes in paragraphs 101 to 105 of his factum, um, it conceded that the uh, risk of uh, hallucinations was foreseeable. And for Mr. Sullivan, he was aware having experienced psychotic episodes from taking Wellbutrin before. Was there a finding? Um, was there a fi That's evidence that's suggestive of it. Was there a finding then? I mean, there, uh, must, have been, there must have been, if you say it's an yes, essential element yes. of 33.1, right? Well, yes, except, um, um, so we have findings of fact in Mr. Sullivan's case regarding the application of 33.1. Uh, Chan didn't rely on 33.1 as it had been uh, held constitutional, so we don't have those specific findings. We do in uh, Sullivan, and I'd refer you to tap 12 of our condensed book. And the very last point I'd make is that the form of liability created in section 33.1, this court has confirmed that this form of predicate act liability is constitutional. That's Pano, where you've got an underlying element of self-induced uh, extreme intoxication, the intent and uh, voluntariness with respect to the prohibited consequence of impaired of driving or assuming care and control. Uh, that is no longer essential. And, uh, and, this and, court what, and what was the, what was the offense in that case? Uh, impaired care and control. The impaired. Act of care and impaired, right in the offense. Yes, just, yeah. uh, just like 33.12. So May I ask this question, please? Um, and it goes back to the way that you're asking us to interpret this section. And that is that uh, what do we do with the fact that this is a provision that's existed for 25 years? And you're putting forward what is, I would I don't even know, and I'm asking you for a, 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 a bit of a novel um, interpretation. Uh, you criticize uh, Vickery and Chalk in your factum for being wrongfully decided. But I guess my question is, is there any case law um, and authority that supports that this is the way that courts across Canada for 25 years have been interpreting this provision? Uh, have been interpreting? No. 
Um, but uh, uh, Brown from the Alberta Court of Appear, Appeal, which you'll hear on November 9th, adopts a very similar interpretation of the provision to the one that we're, uh, that we're, we're prescribing. Right, but I, I guess outside of the constitutional realm, in courts across this country, when the provision was actually being applied, I would be interested to know whether this was the theory of liability that was put forward by the Crown that required then before a conviction, that there be a plain, blameworthy, extreme, intoxicating event and that it, it, there was that requisite foreseeability that you're saying is the threshold here? It, 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 to my recollection, the Crown and Vicberg advanced such an interpretation and it was rejected by the court. 33.1 is a provision that was rarely applied because it was, uh, in my submission, uh, given that it was present, um, there was uh, the defense, the Davio defense was rarely pled. Um, I, I should turn it over to my colleague, Ms. Barrett. Who will so just before you do, one. I don't want to let you go. Do we have to read into the provision an objective risk of violence as well, arising no. from people who are in this state? Why not? Well, doesn't because Creighton talk about their need to be when you're into penal negligence? You don't have to know exactly the form of violence, but don't you have to have some objective basis for holding that people who get into this extreme state, there's a, an objective risk of violence that comes simply from being in that state. Uh, no, and that's uh, that's D'Souza, that's Crichton. Uh, D'Souza, page 55 of our condensed book, um, referring to the offense of unlawful act causing bodily harm. Uh, that offense requires objective foreseeability of bodily harm, but... Uh, quote, there is, however, no constitutional requirement that intention either on an objective or subjective basis extend to the consequences of unlawful acts in general. And some prime examples, sexual assault causing bodily harm, no need for objective foreseeability of bodily harm, uh, impaired driving causing death, no need for, see for foreseeability of death, manslaughter, no need for foreseeability of death. There is, as this court held in Crichton, no precise symmetry rule. Uh, there is no need. Offenses can be constructed based on a predicate act that is sufficiently blameworthy. Where penal negligence say, is the basis of the fault? Yes. yes. Do, you, do you accept that your answer is in total contradiction to the majority regions in Davio? No, I do not. So, we, here, so here's, what, here's, here's what the majority said in Davio. The consumption of alcohol simply cannot lead inexorably to the conclusion that the accused possessed the requisite mental element to commit a sexual assault or any other crime. Rather, the substituted mens rea rule has the effect of eliminating the minimum mental element required for sexual assault. Self-induced intoxication cannot supply the necessary link between the minimal mental element or mens rea required for the offense and the actus reus. Um, here the question is not whether there is some symmetry between the physical act and the mental element, but whether the necessary link exists between the min minimum mental element and the prohibited act. That is to say, the mental element is one of intention with respect to the actus reus of the crime charged. Now that, in my submission, is the final element of... Uh, of Justice Corey's definition of the standard model of liability, a requirement that the mental element constitute intent with respect to the act, uh, with, res with respect to the act charged, with respect to the offense. The crime charge, the offense, yeah. 
Sure, but uh, but there is no constitutional rule that prohibits Parliament from classifying offences based on unintended consequences. And what you have here is, uh, in my submission, uh, intent with respect to the uh, intent voluntary voluntariness with respect to the act of ingestion and an unintended violent consequence. And what the court said in Pano, D'Souza, and Crichton is that that is a constitutional form of liability. Ferlin, did you want to tell us something about stare decisis? Or is it your colleague? Uh, well, I was, uh, I was to address you on stare decisis, but uh, in the interests of... of uh, well, I'm, I'm going to give you uh, just a few minutes on that if... Uh, uh, if you don't mind, before I turn it over to my colleague. And uh, I understand some of the interveners will also be addressing this issue. Uh, I, I just indicate four points briefly. Uh, the first, to our knowledge, the closest this court has come to resolving the issue of whether declarations of invalidity bind courts of coordinate jurisdiction is LABA, where Chief Justice Lemaire contemplated the, that a superior court could disagree on whether a law is constitutional, leaving it for appellate courts to resolve the resulting uncertainty in the law. Second, Mr. Sullivan's strict interpretation of Section 52.1 could leave bad constitutional rulings on the books for long periods of time. Sometimes trial courts get constitutional rulings wrong. Authorities are missed, uh, excuse me, authorities are missed. Sometimes mistakes can be made in analysis, particularly in the context of a criminal trial. Um, Sometimes issues that have been wrongly decided can prove evasive, or at least temporarily evasive, of appellate review. And even when, when review is initiated, it can take years uh, to complete. A strict rule that would require courts to follow wrongly issued declarations of invalidity would undermine the rule of law in two ways. First, it would deprive citizens of valid laws. And second, it would prevent courts from applying valid laws, thus forcing them to exceed their constitutional role and undermine undermining the authority of Parliament. In G, this court unanimously accepted that impairment of the rule of law could justify the temporary application of unconstitutional laws. We say that surely such considerations can also justify the temporary application of laws whose constitutionality remains open for debate. Finally, the rules of, starry, of vertical and horizontal stare decisis are perfectly capable of, capable of guarding against the chaos that the other side alleges would ensue if constitutional issues can be relitigated at first instance. We note that Jordan provides a major incentive for the Crown to not wastefully relitigate constitutional issues. Under the rules of horizontal precedent, courts will generally follow declarations of invalidity, which will continue to have province-wide effect, but absent binding authority from above, judges should not be forced to follow rulings they know to be wrong. They should be free to exercise their authority to interpret and follow the Constitution and the law. I would, I, would, I would say that the classic example of that is a decision per incurium. Yes. Judge A says, here's my declaration. Judge B is presented with an argument that says, well, Judge A was never directed to this governing precedent. And, and the thing is, is, it was plainly never considered. And, and the suggestion that Judge B should say, I don't care. He got past the post first. Even if he missed, he or she missed out on the binding precedent, who cares? I mean, he got out first, and therefore that's the law, end of matter. That seems to me to be just very odd. We would agree. Thank you very much.
Chief Justice, Justices. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, please go ahead. Thank you. 26 years ago, Parliament anticipated the task that is now before this court, and it wanted to ensure that you knew exactly its reasons for enacting 33.1. The preamble contains in Parliament's own words, its objectives, and its chosen means. It provides critical context. Violence by those in extreme states of intoxication is a complex social issue that must be viewed in context. That context includes the devastating impact it has on the charter rights of victims who are disproportionately women and children, the absence of any obviously right answer, and the absence of any defense for lesser degrees of intoxication. This is an issue that lies at the core of Parliament's power and duty to make policy choices to address harm in our society. The harm of intoxicated violence is well documented in the decisions of this court. In Tatton, Justice Muldaver for this court observed that alcohol habitually plays a role in sexual violence and that to allow it as a defense is to endorse, if not promote that very behavior. If that is the harm of alcohol, these concerns are only heightened when one talks about crystal meth and the other chemical drugs common in today's society. Drugs that are taken precisely for their extreme mind-altering effects. And as with our drinking and driving laws, 33.1 ensures that those who pose the greatest threat to public safety are convicted. My submissions will address Section 1 and Mr. Chen's cross-appeal. On Section 1, I have three main points. First, Parliament's objective in enacting 33.1, we say it is twofold accountability for and protection from all intoxicated violence. Second, if these two objectives are used, 33.1 survives the proportionality analysis. And third, Davio is not determinative of what a minimally impairing regime is. With respect to Mr. Chen's uh, request to cross-appeal, I have two key points. First, we say it lacks jurisdiction. And second, we say his request for a substituted verdict is unavailable on the record before you. Uh, Ms. Ms. Barrett, before you start on, on the Section 1 point, uh, uh, do I understand you, you're not relying on an argument that would say that for example, the Section 7 and Section 15 rights of, say, women and children should be balanced at the infringement stage. No, we would say that the uh, rights, the, the competing uh, rights of victims should be dealt with under Section 1, as per Bedford and Carter. Turning to Parliament's objective... Legislation rarely stands or falls at step one of Oaks, yet this has been the key divisive issue in the lower courts. And unlike many provisions, 33.1 has the benefit 
of a detailed and lengthy preamble. To quote Justices Cote and Brown from the Frank decision, it is a corporate statement of legislative purpose. It is the best evidence of Parliament's intent. And when one looks at the broader scheme of 33.1, we say that the animating social value is to promote and ensure a violent free society and maintain confidence in the justice system. Its purpose is accountability and for accountability for and protection from intoxicated violence and the means is to convict self-intoxicated automaton. So yes, it targets one specific group of offender, the self-induced violent automaton, but its purpose is much broader. And, and that becomes clear when one views it alongside the Leary rule, because 33.1 with the Leary rule communicates one simple, clear message that any act of violence is criminal and will be punished without exception. It is a zero tolerance policy and public safety demands no less. 33.1 was responsive to a new public safety threat. The threat that an intoxicated violent act could go unpunished. This is conduct that had previously always been criminalized throughout the history of our common law. So, so is, is your zero tolerance, is, if it, is the zero tolerance argument not in tension with your colleague's argument that this is in fact targeting an even narrower subset where it was, uh, where self-induced intoxication was itself foreseeable? So, I mean, let me give you a just an example of someone who has an unforeseeable reaction to a prescribed drug that they're taking for the first time. Zero tolerance, and for that matter, let's say preliminarily, my reading of the section suggests that that's caught. Um, your colleague says, no, 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 it's not zero tolerance, it's plus five tolerance, it's, it's, it's something else. Um, so, so I guess this sort of carrying you ahead a little bit to overbreath. But um, I, I just thought I'd make that observation. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct, Justice Brown. Um, there will be the odd case um, where the marked departure test is not met. Someone taking prescribed medication in the prescribed dose, uh, we would say rightly that 33.1 ought not to capture that individual. But, in, but Parliament wanted to capture as much as possible. Um, under 33.1. And if, if its intent was simply to reverse Stavio, then the answer was very simple. Uh, just restore the Leary rule. Um, but it didn't. We know from Bouchard-Lebrun, uh, this court recognized that the uh, Leary rule continues to apply with respect to general intent property offenses. 33.1 was tailored specifically to crimes of violence because Parliament's objective was to promote and ensure equality rights. And we know that violence against women is very much an equality issue. And if the intent was simply to reverse 
uh, Daviel, there would also have been no need for the extensive consultations that Parliament engaged in. You'll see it in our condensed book at tab 17 that Justice Minister uh, Rock resisted uh, pressure at, within weeks of the Davio decision to uh, pass legislation before the end of the year. Uh, Parliament wanted a fast response. At the second reading in February of 1995, uh, when the bill was presented, um, there was a motion brought at that time that it simply be passed, just skip over the committee process. And Justice Minister Rock resisted that pressure because he wanted to build the evidentiary record that would support um, Parliament's decision. And the consultations uh, support what we see in the preamble, that there is a disproportionate impact on women and children, uh, that intoxication does play a role in that, and that there are policy reasons why individuals should be held accountable uh, for this conduct. And with regards to the accountability objective, we say it works hand in hand with the uh, protective element, and that's because accountability is more than just punishment. Our criminal law is a system of values and exceptions create uncertainty and a culture that rewards the most dangerous conduct. In Malmo Levine, this court found that criminalizing the simple possession of marijuana met the step one inquiry. If harm from the victimless crime of simple possession is a pressing and substantial objective. How can it be that violence while extremely intoxicated is not? And then it becomes a question of how best to address that. And that is something that falls squarely within Parliament's policy making role. Can I ask you, can I ask you to what degree does the accountability objective need to be particularized. I guess this is another way of asking the zero tolerance point. But but it if you read the preamble it, it seems rather broadly alluded to. And and yet and you've stated it in a couple of different ways just in, in presenting the point to us this morning. Is it that the objective should be particularized to mean accountability for violent acts committed while intoxicated to the point of automatism. It's not just it voluntarily ingesting intoxicants, right? Or is, or is, that, is that nuance worth making? Uh, yes, Justice uh, Kassir, it's, it's when the uh, risk actually materializes. So by individuals engaging in uh, a marked departure that results in extreme intoxication, we say that they are turning themselves essentially into a physical instrument that is devoid of rational thought. And it is that risk to public safety um, that we need to hold accountable. We say an accurate proportionality analysis turns on whether one adopts this narrow or broad definition of Parliament's objectives and courts that have proceeded to the proportionality analysis using their own interpretation 
which rejects or refines Parliament's stated objectives, have failed to accord the posture of respect that this court spoke of uh, in Mills. And what's interesting, I know you're very familiar with the Mills decision from your hearings uh, last week. Um, if one compares the preamble uh, that was used for the 278 regime to the preamble used for 33.1. In terms of the language for Parliament's objectives um, concerning uh, uh, the violence against women and children, it's almost word for word. Um, and in Mills, this court relied heavily on the, on the preamble uh, as indicative of Parliament's uh, intent. So if one accepts that, we say the it survives the proportionality analysis because rational connection and minimal impairment do not demand perfection. We agree with the court below that no one is deterred from drinking in the off chance that they might become a violent automaton, but the same cannot be true of other drugs such as crystal meth. With, and then we come to the heart of section one and the salutary and deleterious effects. The deleterious effects are case specific. The salutary effects are much greater and at a societal level. 33.1 maintains public confidence. It ensures certainty in the operation of the criminal law. It communicates clear standards and expectations, and it promotes the charter rights of all Canadians. I'm this sorry, how can, it, how can it convey a clear standard when we're having, by your colleagues' arguments, to read in part of that standard? Well, the, the message, though, to individuals, the same as anyone who goes to a bar and starts drinking, is that you know at some point uh, where your intoxication is getting to. So we would say that individuals who take chemical drugs, known hallucinogenic drugs, they accept the risk. And uh, as I said, it, they are turning themselves into a physical instrument devoid of rational thought. So that is, um, in my submission, a, a communicating a clear standard. We also say that Davio is not the measure of 33.1's constitutionality. As my colleague, Mr. Perlin, noted, Davio dealt with the common law Leary rule, which is entitled to no deference. The part the parliamentary record that you have before you was not before the Davio Court. The Davio Court gave no consideration to competing charter rights, and the Davio majority recognized that intoxicated violence can be criminalized. These are not wrongful convictions. Turning briefly May I in my stop final you there, minutes, please? Um, in terms of what you're saying about Davio and not taking into account competing charter rights, and what I think you responded to my colleague Justice Brown, that um, the balancing of rights and interests that are contained either in the charter or uh, memorialized in the preamble, you said those are Section One issues and and not sections not a, for balancing under Section Seven, and that strikes me as an odd proposition that you're putting forward. It's my recollection from JJ uh, that the um, AG Ontario. 
uh, through endorsing the BC's approach, in fact, asked us to balance under Section 7. So um, I'm a, could you help me with that, uh, with what you said about Section 7 and Section 1? Well, Justice Martin, I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with the submissions that were made before you last week. Um, but what I can say is that my reading of Bedford and Carter indicates that um, the balancing of societal interests is done under Section 1. So where you have clear principles of fundamental justice that have been articulated, then you go, once there's a violation of that, um, then you go to Section 1. Um, the case before you last week, if it's, a, uh, if it's an issue where the principles of fundamental justice are still being developed, um, then that is uh, an area where you can look at competing rights in terms of how far you want to go in developing the, the Section right principles of fundamental principles of fundamental justice. So, so there is still some room uh, for competing um, rights of society and victims for principles of fundamental justice uh, in terms of defining their scope. When it comes to their application, then it would be under uh, Section 1 only. This, 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 I don't want to get down a, a doctrinal I won't say rabbit hole, but uh, anomaly, it seems to me, that if, if you seek to uh, have reference to Section 7, there's one pattern of analysis. If you seek to have reference to something like 11D, you have another pattern of analysis. And to the extent that 7 and 11D overlap, you have two parallel but different lines of analysis, which strikes to me as as being incoherent. I agree with you, Justice Rowe, that there are... Um, it, the jurisprudence of this court, um, I, I think that there is some overlap in terms of the principles and, and how one deals with these interests, whether it, it is under Section 7 or Section 1. Perhaps in my last five minutes, I can deal briefly with Mr. Chan's cross-appeal. Uh, we say that there is no jurisdiction for his request for, for leave. Um, criminal appeals exist only by statute. It's, uh, the jurisdiction is not found under Section 691. It is explicitly excluded under Section 40 sub 3 of this Courts Act. And even assuming that jurisdiction exists, we say leave should be denied. The request for, his, uh, for an NCR verdict is fact-specific and based on the trial judge's weighing of the expert evidence. And even if there is a material error, the remedy is a new trial, which is what he got. Mr. Chan asked this court for an acquittal under Davio. And this turns on how this court reads the Davio decision. And we say that the court below was correct to, to find that it is limited to those individuals who are so drunk that they are an automaton. And that's because Davio was concerned with those cases where the essential elements of a general intent offense are negated. So where there is no actus reus and no mens rea and only acts 
that are physically involuntary can negate these essential elements. In Davio, that came from his, the evidence of his blackout, which was erroneously treated as akin to automatism. And in Mr. Chan's case, we don't have any evidence. The trial judge found as a fact that the essential elements were proven. And there is no evidence that Mr. Chan was an automaton. Dr. Klassen was the only expert who spoke to this issue. His report, which you will find at tab 21 of our condensed book, indicates that Mr. Chan's conduct was delusional, not automatistic. And Dr. Klassen also testified that even individuals who are quite psychotic can appreciate the nature and quality of the acts. Uh, so Justice Rowe, I know you had asked earlier about the, the difference between an alcoholic blackout and, and delusions. And yes, they are very different. Uh, an alcoholic blackout, we know from the scientific evidence before Parliament, is incapable of producing automatism. Uh, however, delusional driven conduct may or may not negate the essential elements of the offense. And that's clear from the chalk decision of this court, which you will find at tab 21 of our condensed book and page 189 of that book. It's quite clear that incapac an incapacity under the first branch of section 16 can negate the essential elements. So when Justice Corey says extreme intoxication akin to automatism or insanity, the or insanity is because the first branch of Section 16 will also negate the essential elements. An inability or an incapacity to know that acts are morally wrong falls under the second branch and Chalk specifically says that that may or may not negate the essential elements. The key feature being whether that incapacity is caused by a disease of the mind. And ever since McNaughton in 1843, that is the last page of our condensed book, you will see that the term disease of the mind was used by the House of Lords almost 200 years ago for no reason other than to exclude temporary, artificially created states of madness. That is Mr. Chan. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Be seated. Mr. Uh, Michael Morris. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. Canada intervenes in this appeal to address the charter issues raised in respect of the constitutional validity of Section 33.1 and the legal effects of determinations made under Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982. All are addressed in our factum. But subject to your questions, I will restrict myself today to the Section 7 and 11D and the legislative interpretive issues, and I'll be making two related points. First, that the Ontario Court of Appeal erred 
in its interpretation of section 33.1 by mischaracterizing its operation and where it locates the fault and very voluntariness element, effectively ignoring subsection two and the standard of care set out therein. In effect, the court below proceeded as if that subsection did not exist. Properly interpreted, we submit section 33.1 does not run afoul of section seven or 11D. Turning to the interpretive error, the Ontario Court of Appeal found that section 33.1 violates section seven, essentially because it enables the conviction of accused persons who do not have the constitutionally required voluntariness or level of fault for the commission of crime at the time they commit the violence. This, however, in our submission was a misinterpretation of how section 33.1 operates in the blameworthy conduct it targets. The fault targeted by section 33.1 is the voluntary ingestion of an intoxicant that a reasonable person knew or ought to have known creates a realistic risk of automatism where that ingestion departs markedly from the standard of care reasonably expected in the circumstances. And we set that out can, in our fact. Can, can you explain 10. to me where in the section I would find that? Um, yes, uh, Justice Brown, we, we agree with Ontario. You're not, you're not going to find that specifically in the section. What Shouldn't you're going to find in the section, however, is a clear advertence to a penal, negligence, a penal negligence standard by use of the language criminally at fault, by the express incorporation of the marked departure concept in relation to a decision to voluntarily intoxicate. That has to be the blameworthy conduct that's targeted by Parliament. And it's not novel for this court to have to uh, discern fault elements over time. It's not always set out so clearly in the legislation. And that's, I submit precisely what this court did in the ADH 2013 decision, where it said it's not always easy for uh, to discern fault elements in criminal uh, provisions themselves, but, but the jobs often do, the, the courts have to often do that inference as circumstances and facts present themselves. And I submit that this is precisely that. You have a clear um, objective foreseeability, a penal negligence standard of care set out in subsection two that sets out. Well, if it's so clear, why do I have to read it in? Well, you, you, I would submit that actually it doesn't involve, strictly speaking, reading in, because if you actually read the wording of 33.2, it talks about a depart, uh, uh, departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care um, with respect to the fault and the fault here. And I think this is an absolutely critical point. The fault is not the ultimate apex offense in this case where, um, the, the, I'm sorry, the blameworthy conduct is not that because at the point that the actual violence takes place, we're talking about someone who's in an automatistic state. It would be absolutely illogical and uh, beyond the premise uh, that Parliament only holds blameworthy conduct subject to um, criminal sanction, that person isn't capable of discerning what they're doing at that point. So what happens here is that the actual fault, the mode of liability to the commission of the offense, moves from the application of force to the ingestion of the intoxicant creating the risk of automatism. I look, I, I, you've, you've, got, you've got limited time, but that's not what it says. It says, while in a state of self-induced intoxication, we're already at the self-induced intoxication. It's not at the ingestion stage. And with respect, I think the Attorney General of Canada is, is advancing just an untenable interpretation here. Is there anything to be said that 
your colleagues from Saskatchewan make the point that the adjective self-induce modifies not just intoxication, but the whole entire phrase. Is there, is there any... The Crown said what? to us earlier today that everything hangs on self-induced. What, what, what are your views on that part of the interpretation? Well, I would certainly say that the section in subsection 2 focuses on the self-induced element. And in fact, when the bill was introduced, it, it talked about the fault being at the, at the point of intoxication. Minister Rock makes that point when he introduced the, the bill. Now, uh, I, if I recall correctly, the argument is made that that creates ambiguity in this section. I would submit on our reading, there is an ambiguity in this section in the sense that it is, its intent is not clear. I would submit its intent is crystal clear. But you have to read it purposively and textually and logically. If you read it the way the appellants did and the way that the lower court read it, in effect, you have subsection two eliminated. You have all the work done. One subsection 33.1 says, not a defense, then, the, then, then the, the provision is spent. You don't have to go on and, and, and look at the actual standard of care set out in two. And that makes no sense. Because what you'd have in, in that case is a legally meaningless appendage of a reasonable standard, a penal negligence standard set out in subsection two, which would be added on to the criminal fault, which would not have changed by virtue of being the same as what should a traditional pathway be. That is that the liability happens at the point of the application of force. But that can't be what Parliament intended here. It can't be because it's illogical and, and incoherent that Parliament would have simply put in or appended a meaningless provision setting out and talking about marked departure and talking about standard of care and applying that to uh, deem it if it happens at the hands of an irrational, a non-rational actor. That doesn't make sense because the danger that's targeted by the section here is the creation of an automatistic state. That's where the danger lies. That's what Parliament sought to address because we can't predict or know what, is what an automaton is going to do. There, it's pointless to, at that point, to attach blameworthy conduct. It, it, it's done at that point because the person is not capable of making those decisions anymore. They're in an automatistic state. So Parliament says we can't tolerate this kind of uh, criminal, uh, intoxicated violence happening at the most extreme level of automatism. We have to close the door to it, close the gap, um, that was left open by, by uh, the decision in Davio. We have to close the gap, but we have to do it by creating a new mode of liability. And that new mode of liability is to say, if the person self-induces toxication and reasonably foresees the possibility of automatism, they've created the dangerous state. I, 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 I'm not sure with respect to where this argument is getting you, because I, I'm not sure anyone is disagreeing with that proposition. The question is, is whether Parliament did that. And, and your answer in, to, to Justice Kazir is, yes, the section, this was your language, focuses on the self-induced element. I don't even know what that means. I'm just, I, so, so sure. maybe, maybe I, my thinking is just impoverished. I start with the text, and I don't want to go in circles with you, but there's nothing about ingestion. We, we're, we're past in time the state of ingestion by the time we get to the text. And, and um, I mean, you have my concern. Uh, I, under, I understand. Um, 
let me try to address it as best I can. And I'm not sure that's going to satisfy you, but I'll, I'll try as best I can. This may be an element of inelegant drafting, but if you look at it purposively and contextually and logically, there's no other way to read it. It has to be what Parliament intended. There clearly is the danger of the creation of the risk of automatism. And it talks about a marked departure. How can there be a marked departure at the point that someone's automatistic? It has to reference the, the self-inducing. Uh, and, and there's a common law test for self-induced. That hasn't been changed by this section. What this section adds is the additional element of the reasonable forcility in uh, reasonable forcibility in relation to a person becoming unaware of or in uh, incapable or of consciously controlling their behavior voluntarily or involuntarily, which is words expressly set out in subsection two, creating that fundamentally important reasonable standard of care that is not simply a meaningless appendage onto 33.1. I'm what sorry, 30... how can it be a meaningless appendage? Subsection two is exactly what connects this to crimes of violence. I, I, I just I don't understand completely. how you... I'm do... not suggesting it's a... I'm not suggesting it's a meaningless appendage. I'm saying that if you read it the way that the Court of Appeal read it or that the way the appellants do, it becomes a meaningless appendage. It is not a meaningless appendage. It sets, it sets out the standard of care. I am not submitting, and I, I apologize if I appear to be suggesting that. I'm saying that interpretation is absurd because of exactly that. It is the link to what is being accomplished here and, and, and what exactly the standard of care that's being set out is in relation to the creation of the risk of automatism. That's precisely what subsection two critically does. And it's by ignoring that, that the Court of Appeal got it wrong in our submission. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maître Leboeuf. Monsieur le juge en chef, Madame et Monsieur les juges, dans un premier temps, Parmi les enjeux soulevés dans le présent pourvoi, il y a celui de l'interaction entre l'application du principe du stare decisis et les effets d'une déclaration d'invalidité prononcée par une Cour supérieure en vertu de l'article 52 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. Il est bien établi qu'une déclaration d'invalidité prononcée par une Cour supérieure a pour effet de faire cesser les effets juridiques de la disposition législative concernée, et ce, à l'égard de tous. Sans aucunement remettre en cause cet aspect, le procureur général du Québec est d'avis qu'une déclaration de validité pourrait tout de même être écartée par la suite. L'application de l'article 52 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982 pourrait être écartée par une cour d'appel, mais pas par une cour euh, supérieure d'une autre province. Pouvez-vous répéter votre question, s'il vous plaît? Pourrait être écartée une décision d'une cour supérieure déclarant invalide une législation peut être écartée, bien sûr, par une par une décision contraire de la Cour d'appel. Mais ce qui est ici en jeu, c'est est-ce qu'une autre Cour supérieure d'une autre province est tenue ou est, euh, doit respecter la décision d'une autre, autre province? Pour le procureur général du Québec, ce qui est en jeu ici, c'est à l'intérieur de la même province. Euh, il est question de savoir si on peut écarter une décision de la Cour prenons par exemple ici au Québec, si, si une décision de la Cour supérieure du Québec invalidant une disposition législative peut être par la suite écartée par un autre juge de la Cour supérieure du Québec. En ce qui concerne les décisions des autres provinces, celles-ci n'ont pas d'effet euh, au Québec au regard de la constitutionnalité. Leurs jugements auront un effet à l'égard de la province dans laquelle ils ont été prononcés. Maître Leboeuf, je ne veux pas 
vous contredire du tout, mais je cherche à comprendre pourquoi vous tenez pour acquis qu'il n'y a aucun volet interprovincial à, à, à la règle que vous, euh, vous dessinez. C'est que les compétences des tribunaux sont délimitées de façon provinciale. Ici, les cours supérieures ont toujours eu une juridiction à l'intérieur des provinces dans lesquelles elles se trouvent. Et, euh, et pour, pour le procureur général du Québec, bien, les effets d'une déclaration d'invalidité prononcée dans une province, qu'on parle toujours ici d'une déclaration d'invalidité prononcée par une cour supérieure, sont limitées à cette province-là. Si c'est la, la même législation, être, on, on présume que c'est la même législation à travers le pays. Euh, donc, on se retrouvait dans une situation où il y a une déclaration d'invalidité à, à l'aide du Prince-Édouard sur une législation qui est applicable également en Ontario et qui serait euh, possiblement euh, déclarée euh, valide en Ontario. Oui. Bien, je, vais, je vais répondre à votre question, M. juge en chef, par euh, un exemple un peu contraire. C'est qu'à partir du moment où on prendrait pour acquis qu'une déclaration d'invalidité prononcée par une Cour supérieure dans une province aurait un effet pan-canadien, qu'elle aurait pour effet nécessairement de lier toutes les courses supérieures, mais en, en, en bout de ligne, il serait impossible de faire cheminer un débat, euh, sauf erreur de, de notre part, jusqu'à la Cour suprême. Si on regarde le présent dossier et le pourvoi Brown qui sera entendu euh, prochainement par la Cour, euh, à compter du moment où la Cour supérieure de l'Ontario a invalidé l'article 33.1 du Code criminel dans la décision donne, cela signifierait que la disposition que l'article 33.1 ne pourrait plus produire d'effet euh, au Canada dans l'ensemble. Il n'y aurait pas pu avoir un débat qui puisse se rendre jusqu'à la Cour d'appel de l'Alberta parce que la disposition aurait été privée de ses effets euh, dès le départ. C'est pour ça qu'au point de vue pan-canadien, ça amènerait à une situation que je me permets de qualifier peut-être un peu euh, d'extrême. Ça empêcherait tout débat subséquent. Il me semble que c'est une conséquence nécessaire d'être un pays fédéral. Bien, le, le volet fédéral que nous retrouvons ici, bien, il va se jouer avec les dossiers, il va être pris en compte lorsque les dossiers chemineront euh, jusqu'à la Cour suprême. La Cour suprême a ce rôle d'uniformité euh, du droit à travers le Canada. Et lorsqu'on regarde, mettons, comme ici, une disposition qui est dans le Code criminel, c'est justement pour ça qu sait que les procureurs généraux, en présence de déclarations d'invalidité, vont s'adresser aussi à la Cour suprême. Pas uniquement pour venir dire « j'ai un problème dans un dossier », mais pour dire aussi « il y a une problématique pan-canadienne, il est d'intérêt pour le Canada d'avoir une certitude quant au droit applicable. Est-ce que cette disposition elle est valide ou non ?» Et pour un procureur général, quand une demande d'autorisation d'appel est faite à la Cour suprême, c'est pour aussi, pas simplement pour régler un dossier d'espèce, mais aussi pour une question d'uniformité pan-canadienne du droit. Dans ce contexte, bien, la position du procureur général du Québec, si on revient euh, sur la prémisse que la décision vaut euh, à l'égard euh, d'une province, c'est que le principe du salarié décisif doit être modulé afin de pouvoir concilier les effets d'une déclaration finale d'invalidité qui sera ergonomique et les, et, euh, les raisons d'être qui est de, de l'article 52. Ça fait, dans ce cas-ci, euh, le procureur général du Québec est d'avis qu'une décision pourrait par la suite être écartée en vertu du principe du tarif décisif lorsque un des éléments suivants sera établi par le procureur général. C'est-à-dire qu'il y a une nouvelle question de droit qui se pose ou qu'il y a eu une modification au niveau de la preuve ou de la situation qui change radicalement la donne.
Est-ce que vous mettez le bœuf, vous ajouterez à votre liste au paragraphe 9, vous dites nouvelle question de droit, modification de la situation, la preuve change radicalement, que le tribunal s'est trompé Est-ce qu'on peut, est peut le plaider ainsi Normalement, lorsqu'un tribunal rend une décision et euh, au regard, mettons, une déclaration d'invalidité qui, euh, d'emblée, le procureur général euh, estime que cette décision-là est erronée, euh, la première étape à suivre, normalement, est d'aller en appel de cette décision-là. Euh, pour, pour le procureur général du Québec, c'est la première chose qui est à faire. Euh, la position dont le procureur général du Québec fait état ici, c'est à compter du moment où on peut estimer dans l'évaluation d'un dossier que la décision, même s'il y a un désaccord, euh, on pourrait avoir peu de chances de la faire infirmer en appel euh, en raison, au regard du droit applicable. Mais à compter du moment où il y a une modification, soit jurisprudentielle euh, ou des nouvelles, comme on a mentionné, des, des situations au niveau de la preuve qui pourraient survenir, euh, même si la décision à l'origine, on pouvait estimer qu'elle était oui, défavorable au procureur général, mais peut-être pas manifestement erronée, euh, mais que par la suite, avec l'évolution euh, du droit, euh, il peut être amené à se dire, ben, finalement, le précédent euh, prononcé il y a quelques années, ben, euh, à notre avis, il n'est plus juste, euh, il ne doit pas faire autorité en la matière et il pourrait être possible de demander à un tribunal de l'écarter en vertu de critères précis, bien définis et qui ont été appliqués à diverses occasions. Est-ce que, Maître Leboeuf, dans, dans, dans vos arguments, est-ce qu'il pourrait arriver que dans une même province, on va prendre le Québec, que vous ayez trois ou quatre décisions, disons, de cours supérieure euh, qui sont différentes? Deux décisions, par exemple, ont déclaré inconstitutionnel l'article en question et deux autres décisions ont confirmé la validité. Et la Couronne continue de déposer des plaintes et faire des procès. Est-ce que ça pourrait arriver, ça, dans votre argument? Et la Couronne ne va pas en appel, là des déclarations d'invalidité. Selon la compréhension que le procureur général du Québec a de la jurisprudence de la Cour quant aux effets euh, engendrés par l'application de l'article 52, sauf erreur, lorsqu'une déclaration d'invalidité est prononcée par une Cour supérieure, celle-ci est un gars nice. Euh, par conséquent, cette loi invalidée-là, et que cette disposition serait invalide, ne pourrait pas, dans le cadre, par exemple, d'une infraction, euh, donner lieu à une accusation euh, par la suite. Euh, C'est la, la, la lecture que, que nous faisons actuellement de jurisprudence, notamment de la régie euh, rendue l'an dernier. Euh, et c'est pour ça, c'est dans ce contexte-là qu que nous proposons une approche modulée pour, euh, pas contourner, mais pour avoir une réponse à la au contexte que cela amène. C'est pour ça que normalement, une disposition qui est invalidée par une cour supérieure ne devrait pas produire un effet par la suite, à moins qu'elle soit écartée. Écartée soit par un appel ou en vertu de notre proposition ici. Évidemment, les critères que le procureur général du Québec met de l'avant ont été généralement étudiés puis appliqués dans le cadre de situations où la Cour a été euh, amenée à se demander si elle devait suivre un précédent qui avait maintenu la validité constitutionnelle d'une disposition législative contestée. Pour le, pour le procureur général du Québec, il manifeste que le fait que de nouvelles questions juridiques peuvent se présenter ou qu'il y ait des modifications de la preuve changeant radicalement la donne ne sont pas des circonstances qui sont exclusives au précédent maintenant la validité constitutionnelle d'une disposition législative. 
Ces mêmes circonstances peuvent également être pertinentes en ce qui concerne les déclarations d'invalidité prononcées par une Cour supérieure en application de l'article 52. Ainsi, comme, je, euh, comme nous l'avons mentionné précédemment, il pourrait arriver des circonstances où un procureur général estimerait opportun de demander à un tribunal d'écarter une décision antérieure d'une Cour supérieure déclarant inconstitutionnelle une disposition législative. Ça complète vos représentations? Ça fait le tour des représentations pour le stade des CCS. Merci, M. Leboeuf. Merci. Amy Cutler. Thank you, Chief Justice. I'm going to try to make three points. First, running throughout Justice Pachoco's reasons below is his view that Parliament's concerns are overblown because these issues arise only in the rarest of cases and affect only a few victims. This underlies virtually every facet of his analysis, particularly under Section 1. Respectfully, this is simply not the case. The availability and potency of modern chemical drugs leads regularly to extreme violence in every part of the country. And Justice Rowe, we totally agree it is important to emphasize that these drugs are nothing like alcohol. They create profound dissociation, hallucination, and paranoia. They cause psychosis and abnormal behavior, including unpredictable acts of violence. And the results are shocking. In our factum, we set out a number of recent examples. They include random stabbings, attacks on children, kidnappings, people setting apartment buildings on fire. None of this is uncommon. In fact, you recognized this 10 years ago in Bouchard-Lebrun when you said toxic psychosis is unfortunately a fairly frequent phenomenon that seems to result from the high toxicity of chemical drugs. The situation has not improved in the intervening 10 years as Justice Slatter recently recognized in Brown. If anything, the drugs now are just stronger and subject to more widespread abuse. None of this, respectfully, is reflected in the decision below, and that, we say, significantly understates the problem. The decision to consume these substances is extraordinarily dangerous, not just for the user, but for the members of the surrounding community. That leads to my second point. The decision below contemplates total acquittals, no accountability, and no preventive measures to stop the violence from reoccurring. Clearly, that carries substantial implications for the charter rights of the victims. But apart from that, it also has a significant impact on public confidence in the administration of justice. Justice Lowers described a pervasive sense of outrage following the decision in Davio. So did Justice Slatter in Brown. It was swift, intense, and largely nonpartisan. The prospect that the system was helpless and unable to respond to dangerous choices that led to avoidable deaths or injuries offended the community's deep intuition of justice. As, by the way, did a standard that exonerated only the ones who maximized the danger they posed by getting so intoxicated that they lost all self-control, like a law that immunized liability for collisions, but only if the driver was speeding fast enough. Again, simply no consideration of these concerns by Justice Pachoco. In fact, it's the opposite. He rejected them as part of Parliament's misguided accountability purpose. Respectfully, we strongly disagree with that. Your jurisprudence, the code, and the charter itself all suggest that maintaining confidence in the administration of justice is an important principle that justifies the restriction of charter rights. And again, 
we provided several examples in our factum. Why? Why is it so important? Well, as Chief Justice McLaughlin uh, acknowledged in Hall, it's because confidence in, uh, in the justice system is fundamental to maintaining the rule of law. If we lose it, we lose everything. Respectfully, this was not something that Parliament could responsibly ignore, as Justice Pachoco suggested that it should have done. And I should note that it's not just Canada that has drawn this uh, conclusion. As the Attorney General of Canada points out, many comparable jurisdictions take a similar approach, which is not surprising because their citizens share the same deep intuition of justice, to use Justice Lauer's language. Turning to my last point, none of this means the answer is easy. On the contrary, as everyone who has studied the issue, including the Law Reform Commission, has concluded, there are no easy answers. Any solution will necessarily require a degree of doctrinal flexibility. That doesn't mean that we are punishing the morally innocent. Uh, and uh, at the latter pages of our factum, pages 18 and 19, we set out the reasons why in our submission, the moral blameworthiness of an accused who satisfies the threshold of section 33.1 supports holding him or her accountable for violent offenses that they commit while intoxicated. And the first point I want to make in that regard is that marked departure is a high standard. Uh, liability will only ensue where the accused fails to direct his or her mind to the risk that a reasonable person would have appreciated. Here, the risk that behavior would lead to extreme intoxication and a subsequent violent offense. I just want to pause here uh, to go back to Justice Moldaver's earlier question. Uh, in our view, the fault requirement of the section corresponds to the actions covered by the entirety of the section. So we say that the accused um, has to, well, ought to have appreciated a risk not only that uh, the consumption would lead to extreme intoxication, but also that it would raise the risk of a subsequent violent offense. And this is important uh, when uh, you consider the question of members of the community who suffer from addictions. Well, because I, for I them, uh, sorry, Mr. Cutler, I have to interrupt because I mean you make some very important points in this regard. But how much can we read into a provision? Yeah. I mean, there are so many possibilities, ranging from a 17-year-old who's experimenting for the first time to someone who thinks they're getting some drug, but in fact it's been spiked with something else that they don't know about that could be hallucinatory. Um, and you just made the point about objective, you know, foreseeability of violence or the risk of it. I mean, it, it, I, <laughs> I don't mean to sort of suggest that the argument is hopeless, but I just don't know how much we can write into a provision that on its face is so devoid of all of this. That's a very fair comment, uh, Justice Moldaver. Uh, what I, I think I can say is uh, the idea of marked departure uh, can carry a lot of baggage. Uh, trial judges are very used to applying it. Um, in our factum, we point to what we think the key things that the, the courts will be looking at, that is to say the nature of the drug, the amount consumed, and the surrounding circumstances. And that will be the indication uh, that they will work around when considering, does this meet that high standard of a marked departure? So if you are taking an identified intoxicant in a moderate manner, you're probably not going to get to that threshold. 
if you're taking an unidentified substance or you're taking a wildly excessive amount of a substance or you're binging on crystal meth, then maybe you are. Uh, it depends on the facts. Um, but just returning to that last point, because this, I think this does speak to your question as well. If you do read the section as including uh, the foreseeability of the risk of violence, then that allows for a much broader, we, we say, uh, analysis by the finder in terms of whether there has actually been a marked departure from the standard of reasonable care. Um, because, you know, you may be taking uh, a substance, say, because you have an addiction, or maybe it's a substance and you're not sure what it is. You say, okay, you know what? Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen when I take this. Maybe I am going to lose control. Maybe I should take some steps to reduce the potential for danger to other people if I do lose control, right? Maybe I need to give my knife to somebody else so that I'm not holding on to it uh, while I lose control of my body. And the finder will consider the efforts to work around the circumstances that the accused finds themselves in, for example, an addiction, uh, while recognizing uh, the need to ensure the safety of other people. So in other words, it's the conduct as a whole that goes into the analysis and which must constitute a marked departure in order for liability to attach. So then say you have somebody who does meet that threshold. Sorry, just before you go on, where are mm -hmm. you getting this from? Self-induced as my colleague Justice Kassir asked, or, or is it just, we're just kind of well, plugging holes that are appear <laughs> to be in the section. We're legislating a little bit. Well, I, I would say you're maybe squinting a little bit when you read the legislation, um, but the section governs uh, to, um, if you read the section as a whole, it's aimed at the, the consumption of intoxicants that makes you uh, uh, extremely intoxicated and the commission of a subsequent violent offense. So read as a whole, where would I find the consumption? Um, it is in uh, the first subsection, uh, where the self-induced intoxication uh, results in the lack of, of general intent. No, but in sub two, sub one just takes away a defense. I think everyone's agreed on that. So sub two creates the criminal fault. As I say, uh, Justice Brown, um, it's hardly a model of successful drafting. Actually, um, it looks fine to me. I mean, this is this is this is this is what lawyers try and do when they try and get around clear text, as they call it ambiguous or not a felicitous model of drafting. It says, "Person departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care, therefore criminally fault where, while in a state of self." Induced intoxication, dot, dot, dot. They voluntarily or involuntarily interfere or threaten to interfere. What's, what's, what's confusing about that? Uh, well, if you read it that way, in other words, if you read you the read it that way, I just read as, it. Yeah, I just read okay. it. It's not a question of how, well, the way I read it. I read it. Um, before I answer, um, Justice Brown, uh, Chief Justice, may I just have a, a, a little bit of extra time to respond to Justice Brown's question? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, so if you interpret uh, Mark departure as referring to the violent act and not the act of consumption, then that contradicts the first part of the section because the same act can't be criminally negligent and also automatous. Uh, that is logically impossible. You can't make a decision 
that represents a marked departure from the conduct of a reasonable person if you can't make a decision. Um, so that's why we say you have to read the sections together and why we say the fault uh, requirement of the section derives from uh, reading both of them together as a whole. All right. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, Lara Visoli. Chief Justice, uh, Justices, today I intend to address uh, the Section 52 and stereodecisis issue. The Attorney General of British Columbia takes the following position. First, that a declaration of invalidity made pursuant to Section 52 sub 1 is not an ordinary order or decision of the court, and it shouldn't be treated as such. When a superior court justice makes such an order, it means the law is of no force and effect in that jurisdiction until such time as a higher court rules otherwise. And Chief Justice, to answer the question that you asked earlier with respect to why that wouldn't apply across Canada, I say that's because um, the law recognizes that not all courts have jurisdiction to make that order. For example, a provincial court judge cannot make a formal declaration of invalidity, but a statutory, uh, a court that's statutorily empowered to do so, such as an appellate court of this court or a court of inherent jurisdiction can do that. But those courts are limited by their own jurisdiction and that jurisdiction is limited to the province in which they preside. Second, AGBC submits that the problem identified by the majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal, namely that a decision finding legislation unconstitutional takes precedence over other decisions upholding the same legislation, um, is better addressed by strict adherence to the principles of horizontal stereodecisis in relation to prior decisions which find legislation constitutional. AGBC submits that a court of coordinate jurisdiction should only reconsider a decision upholding the constitutionality of a provision where the threshold established by this court in Bedford, recognizing that Bedford was addressing the application of vertical, not horizontal stereodecisis, is met, or alternatively, where there is palpable and overriding error, as opposed to the um, more amorphous terms, plainly wrong or manifestly wrong. Well, how about per incurium? In other words, they just overlooked something. So Judge A makes a decision. You go before Judge B and say, well, Judge A didn't take into account. It just wasn't brought to his or her attention. And so, Judge B, you shouldn't be bound because there's a cogent reason why you should look at this not simply to substitute your own view, but they just miss something that's highly relevant. Well, Justice Rowe, I say that falls into the category of palpable and overriding error. So while I say that a Section 52 declaration is different, and once it's made, that that standard doesn't apply, AGBC also says in the alternative, if this court determines that a Section 52 declaration does not bind courts of coordinate jurisdiction, that the same test I just outlined should apply uh, before another court um, overrules it, which is that the standard should be palpable or, and overriding error or the Bedford threshold. 
I wonder if, if it's helpful to bring in the language of palpable and overriding error, which we tend to associate with overturning a lower court on a matter of fact, whereas per incurium is actually, I mean, it's <clears throat> just because it has a Latin name doesn't mean it's obscure or its meaning is obscure. It's actually quite precise and, um, and might might be less awkwardly applied than a standard that we've typically applied to factual errors. I think that's a fair point, Justice Brown. Um, it, it, the The main thrust of the submission um, on behalf of AGBC is that plainly wrong and manifestly wrong are are really they they countenance mere disagreement as a reason for departing from an earlier constitutional decision. And that leads in AGBC's submission to chaos. Um, so whether this court uh, chooses the language of per curiam or I agree that palpable and overriding error is most often associated with an appellate court and implies an error in the court. Be- it sort of goes against the principle in some ways of stereodecisis because it involves a fellow judge finding error in his fellow judge's uh, judgment. Uh, but um, that said, it is a it is a well known and understood standard. Um, turning Sorry. to the nature, what if judges judges A and B to use my colleague Rose's example disagree as to what the pressing and ob- substantial objectives are of the statute that's being contested? Is there room for? the kind of error that you're looking for there? Yes, um, I think there is. But again, um, that is the that is the alternate position of AGBC where a law has been declared invalid. So that would be in the context of a previous decision upholding a law. And yes, I think there is room for that under section under the section one analysis. So if you have a decision upholding the constitutionality and another one finding it unconstitutional, I mean, we, um, you're saying you'd only be bound by the one that found it unconstitutional? Y- yes. Strictly speaking, yes, because once uh, there is a declaration of invalidity that has a different effect on the law than upholding its constitutionality. That said, decisions upholding the constitutionality of the law have to be given um, more weight than I think they presently are. Turning um, to the nature of a declaration of invalidity, um, in Attorney General versus G, Justice Karakastanis, uh, in writing for the court, you said that our legal order is grounded in both constitutional supremacy and the rule of law and requires that there be an institution empowered to finally determine a law's constitutionality. And you specifically reference the reach of a judicial determination of unconstitutionality, noting that it is limited in the absence of statutory or inherent jurisdiction to issue a general declaration of invalidity. And AGBC submits that that implicitly recognizes that when a court with statutory or inherent jurisdiction does issue a declaration of invalidity, its reach is not limited in the same way. 
Similarly, in Ferguson, Chief Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, wrote for the court addressing the notion of constitutional exemptions and said that the divergence between the law and the books and the laws applied exacts the price paid in the coin of injustice because it impairs the right of a citizen to know what the law is in advance, because it risks over-application of the law, and because it invites duplication of effort. It's at paragraph 72. If a declaration of invalidity is nothing more than a precedent that may or may not be followed by a subsequent, subsequent court, is it anything more than a constitutional exemption? What would be the point of distinguishing between the reach of a decision of a provincial court judge and a judge with either statutory or inherent jurisdiction to make a formal declaration of invalidity? Further, what would be the point of suspending a declaration of invalidity if it has no effect beyond any other decision of a court of coordinate jurisdiction? But, I mean, the ordinary rules of horizontal stare decisis provide that by applying sort of the doctrine of comity, I don't merely disagree with my colleague if I'm a superior court judge. Someone has to demonstrate to me that there's a cogent basis for revisiting the issue. And in the absence of a cogent basis, I accept as a matter of comedy that the earlier decision is, is, is the effective decision, and I don't, it, it, in practice, it becomes binding uh, unless someone can show me why it isn't. And, and uh, I mean, I just don't know why there's a problem with that. Justice Rowe, I would say the problem is in the application. Um, and in my factum, I set out a number of examples, recent examples uh, from the elimination of peremptory challenges and the amendments to Bill C-51 in which there is little, in, in many cases, there is little attention paid to the concept of comedy or stereotypes. Bingo, so, but my point is, is, is that the problem is not with the rule. The problem is that people haven't been paying attention to the rule which is different. Well, I think it's in the way the rule is expressed and that the rule needs to be expressed in more stringent terms um, than simply manifestly wrong or plainly wrong, which are often translated and easily translated to mere disagreement. I see that my time has expired. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nawal. Thank you, Chief Justice. Saskatchewan would like to make two points here today. The first relates to the proper interpretation of section 33.1. We say 33.1 only applies when extreme intoxication or intoxicant induced automatism is objectively foreseeable. And while making this point, I will address some of the earlier questions. Our position is that this interpretation is available on the face of the text and does not require acrobatic acts of reading it. The second point relates to how 33.1 advances its protective objective. That is, I want to articulate in what way 33.1 protects the public and the rights of women and children to prevent a misunderstanding that might taint the following section one analysis. First, interpretation. The issue is whether 33.1 applies whenever an accused knowingly consumes an intoxicant or whether something additional is required such as objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication or automatism, or for the consumption of that intoxicant to also constitute a marked departure. In Saskatchewan submissions, 
the resolution of this interpretation issue must begin with an honest recognition of the fact that 33.12 is oddly drafted when considered in relation to 33.11. The relation between those two is where the ambiguity arises and it's not crystal clear. Sub two offers a definition of marked departure that acts as a condition precedent for the application of 33.1. But that but then defines that marked departure in an unclear manner. It says a marked departure occurs whenever a person, and I quote, while in a state of self-induced intoxication that renders the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior, and when in that state violence follows. The respondents suggest that the subsection's conditions are satisfied wherever someone has self-induced intoxication and automatism and violence follows. All conditions it is important to note that are already present in sub one. All of those are already there in sub one. So in other words, the response suggests that sub two adds nothing to 33.1 whatsoever, other than deeming a set of circumstances and consequences beyond the accused control of marked departure, presumably an attempt on the part of the drafters to help the provision pass constitutional muster. Saskatchewan, however, submits that this is not the correct interpretation of 33.1 sub 2. The subsection's conditions are satisfied only where a person self-induces extreme intoxication in the sense that they consume substance, which is objectively foreseeable to risk automatism. It does not capture the spike drink. It does not capture faultless, unforeseeable automatism. These situations rather lie outside the provision's purpose and effect. We submit this interpretation as consistent with the text of 33.1, and I'll go into that shortly because I think it's, it's important, but is also supported by various conventions of statutory interpretation. First, from a textual perspective, this interpretation logically follows from reading the adjective self-induced in sub two as modifying the entire phrase, intoxication that renders the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior. The automatism, and not just the intoxication, must be self-induced for the sub-2 mark departure to occur. And for something to be self-induced, there must be objective foreseeability based on the mens rea, the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal developed for the concept of self-induced in the case chalk. Other than being available on the language of sub two, this interpretation is supported by many other interpretive principles and aids, such as the presumption against surplusage, because it's only under this interpretation that sub two does any work. Self-induced intoxication, automatism, and a violent crime are already conditions that are present in sub one. And, and this answers perhaps some, an earlier question, um, suggesting that maybe sub two links, the work it does was link the violence to, to the intoxication. But my suggestion is that it, the violence is already present in sub one by the opening words. Um, so th for this point, our position is that the presumption against surplusage aids this interpretation. Um, it's also aided, as mentioned in our factum, by the strict construction rule, the, provi the provisions legislative history, and finally, um, the presumption of constitutional compliance, potentially. Uh, Saskatchewan acknowledges that there is enough space between the respondent's interpretation and this interpretation that this court could find one justifiable but the other not. 
If this were the case, the presumption of constitutional compliance would be an additional and powerful reason to favor this interpretation. Moving on to my second point now, I want to clearly identify how 33.1 advances its protective objective. This is the process of placing the correct weights on the scales for the section one balancing exercise. In our factum, we argue 33.1 pursues two interrelated important objectives. First, an accountability objective, which is both communicative and penal, and two, a protective objective. Today, I'm just going to talk about how 33.1 advances its protective objective because the, in our submissions, this was misunderstood by the court below. So how does 33.1 protect? In two ways, it deters dangerous intoxication and it deters intoxicated violence more generally. First, it deters people from self-inducing extreme intoxication or intoxicating themselves to the point that they risk losing their ability to control themselves. It puts the community on notice that all people will be held responsible um, for the acts they commit while extremely intoxicated, provided that intoxication was objectively foreseeable, which in turn dissuades people from consuming intoxicants in a manner which might result in automatism. Considering the evidence before Parliament when enacted 33.1 that showed a strong correlation between intoxication and violence, it is rational to believe that deterring this extreme risky intoxication also reduces violence and protects. I'm sorry, I'd like to, to bring you to paragraph 73 of your factum that is in your section one analysis. I mean, you're, you're there dealing with the salutary and dilatorious effects. And it, it, it's a... It's a, a, an astounding proposition that you're putting forward here to me, um, that you're saying in some circumstances conviction could occur where a trier of fact has a reasonable doubt about an essential element of the offense. Uh, although this is a serious deleterious effect for a specific individual, the severity and frequency of an impugned provision's impact both must be considered when its overarching deleterious effects are assessed. Am I reading that correctly to say that or to suggest that while a, a wrongful conviction may be a serious deleterious effect for a specific individual, we have to th look to its severity and frequency before it becomes a deleterious effect? The, the proposition certainly is not that it has to be frequent in order for it to be a deleterious effect. Um, in fact, the situation described there is a deleterious effect in, in our submissions and is a deleterious effect um, of significancy. Um, the proposition that I'm putting, that Saskatchewan put forward there, is that f the frequency of that deleterious effect is also something that should be considered when, when assessing the overall deleterious effects that are stemming from a, from a provision. So what are we to do with Justice Corey's statement in Davio that to deny that even a very minimal mental element is required for sexual assault offends the Charter in a manner that is so drastic and so contrary to the principles of fundamental justice that it cannot be justified? Thank you, Justice Brown. Um, well, my, my initial submission on that point is, is that um, largely for the reasons suggested by, by the Attorney General of Ontario that, that, that this provision is on side of the principles of fundamental justice. Um, that, that, that's the first answer. The, the second answer 
it relates to um, well, well, but but but, you're, but you're saying in this paragraph that Justice um, Martin pointed you to that the lack of a mens rea, uh, you know, may, it just all comes out in the balancing, and that in some circumstances uh, the absence of that mental element may still support a conviction. That's not what Justice Corey says in Davio. He's quite categorical on that. Our position is is that. Um, in certain circumstances, breaches can be justified under section breaches of section seven can be justified under section one. And that and can that, be that, reconciled that with Davio how? Of, that can be reconciled with Davio how? How can that be reconciled with Davio? I suppose I would, in in response, point to um, the jurisprudence on section one more generally. That that I I I, I am unable to recall a, a case that has said section seven can never be justified under section one. And I, and I suppose that's what what our position is is relying on is the suggestions in Bedford that that although these principles of fundamental justice are integral. Um, there's still a space for Section 1. It's, it, it, they're not a matter of absolute rights. The, the statement, sorry, I know you're out of time, but the statement in Davio presupposes that there's room for Section 1. He's conducting a Section 1 analysis, and he says this will never work under Section 1. Not Section 7 never works under Section 1. What you're defending in paragraph 73 never works under Section 1. I suppose, Justice Brown, my, my answer to that is is that um, the principles the principles of fundamental justice are are, are are based on the case law from this court can be justified under Section One. Um, in in that 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 statement from Davio has to be read in alongside that the rest of that jurisprudence. All right. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning lunch. <laughs> lunch break. We'll be back at uh, 2 o'clock. The court, la court. Please be seated. And thank you. Ms. Deborah Alford. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. It is clear from this morning's question that, of course, the key issue in this particular case is the proper interpretation of Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code. Alberta respectfully submits that if properly interpreted, the section is not violative of either Section 7 or 11D of the Charter. And we say this for one primary reason, which is this court's unanimous decision in Regina and Bouchard LaBelle some 10 years ago. Firstly, at paragraph 35 of that decision, the court said section 33.1 was not a recasting of the Leary rule. It said that it was not simply a codification of the minority in Davio, but rather it was a limit on the majority decision in Davio. And with respect, we suggest that the court embarked upon a holistic analysis of the section 
reading it all together, not parsing it out, but looking at it from a holistic and purposive fashion. Alberta further suggests that the three elements as described by Justice LaBelle at paragraph 89 and in paragraphs 90 and 91 must be read in their entire context, including the final sentence of paragraph 89, where Justice LaBelle in reference to the three elements says, where those things are proved, it is not a defense that the accused lacked the general intent or the voluntariness required to commit the offense. Further, moving on to paragraph 90, this court continued that self-induced intoxication refers is, is limited in time. It corresponds to the period during which the substance consumed by the accused produced its effect. The court says section 33 sub 1 sub 2 leaves no doubt about, that, about this, that it provides a person to be criminally at fault. So with respect, it is Alberta's submission that this court has already interpreted section 33.1 and that in so doing you in this case and of course in the subsequent subsequent brown decision that that will be heard on november the 9th of this year that this court has an opportunity to expand upon that we also respectfully submit that the legislative history that is included in this appeal record before you in the Chan and Sullivan cases uh, is important to aid in this interpretation. The preamble, of course, has been referenced by Ontario and by other interveners this morning in this hearing. I would like to point the court to another piece of interpretive uh, material that is included in the legislative history. It is actually at tab 44A of the appellant's record. It was referred to in a footnote by Justice Slatter of the Alberta Court of Appeal in Regina and Brown. And it is an information note that was provided by the Department of Justice in reference to section 33.1. And at page one and extending onto page two of that interpretive note, it says the new law would for the first time set out a standard of care to apply to self-induced intoxication. It would declare that people who voluntarily become so intoxicated that they lose conscious control of their behavior to become unaware of what they are doing and who cause harm to others, breach the standard of reasonable care generally recognized in Canadian society. It is Alberta's respectful submission that if uh, this court considers, of course, the wording of the statute, 
the interplay among all of the subsections of the statute, the criminal code, the purposive reason behind it, and if this court looks to the legislative history, that the interpretation uh, which Ontario and others suggest can easily be be held by this court in keeping primarily with the decision of Bouchard Lebrun. Now, I would like to very quickly uh, also speak to what this section does not do and how it is a narrow section. Of course, it deals with crimes of general intent involving violence. It does not deal with a theft or a mischief to property. Isn't that all that was left open to you after Davio? I mean, it, yes, I agree. It deals with a narrow set of circumstances and a, a narrow subset of offenders. But I, I think, fairly read, it, 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 that's all that was open to you after Davio. And, and it removes that. So I'm not sure if the narrowness really gets you anywhere. Well, there wasn't uh, much left, and that's been removed, all of it. Yes, because, of course, if one recalls the Leary rule, it, it said that drunkenness did not apply to any offense of general intent. Um, and then it was whittled away, uh, and, and, right. and, of course, Davio... And, and my point is, after that, that's all there was left to the defense, right? Just that narrow band of offenders and circumstances. So seen in that light, this isn't really particularly narrow. It removed 100% of the defense. And it was done because Parliament uh, said that it should be done. Well, obviously, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, when we look at the, that the key distinction there between the common law and then what Parliament saw fit to do, uh, th that is why we are saying that what Parliament saw fit to do is actually, when you look at it, um, for, for very good sound policy reasons, namely in an effort to stop this type of uh, action brought on by people who decide to imbibe upon an intoxicant, be it uh, alcohol or a illicit drug or a legal drug, or perhaps a combination of all of it, that when people embark upon that type of activity, that they, they should know that what they are doing can lead to very dire consequences, as, of course, the two cases that are before the court in Chan and Sullivan uh, so aptly show, um, you know, stabbing a member of one's family to death in the case of Mr. Chan and, 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 and significantly wounding um, Dr. Chan's partner. Similarly, Mr. Sullivan in stabbing his then 82-year-old mother, although she survived and she passed away, I understand, of other causes. Uh, it, it, that is why Parliament saw fit to act in this way. And we suggest that they did so in a manner where they clearly thought about the charter rights 
of accused persons. And they came up with this measured approach in section 33.1. I see that my time is drawing near. So subject to any further questions, those are Alberta's respectful submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Megan Stevens. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. LEAF intervenes in this appeal to ask this court, when assessing the constitutionality of Section 33.1, to give appropriate consideration to all of the rights that Parliament contemplated when it enacted this provision. While you must obviously consider the impact of the law on the rights of the accused, we say you must also give due weight to the other rights engaged by Section 33.1, the equality, dignity, and security rights of women and children as guaranteed by the Charter. The legislative history and the preamble to the bill enacting this law make it clear that Parliament was seeking to strike a balance between this rights, these rights. This requires a different analysis than the one undertaken by this court in Davio 27 years ago, where there was no consideration of rights other than those of the accused. And it also, in our submission, requires a different approach than that of the court below, where the charter rights of women and children were almost entirely absent from the court's decision, seemingly relegated to secondary status. The courts, the Ontario Court of Appeals approach, with its singular focus on the rights of the accused, is not consistent with the decisions of this court cautioning against adopting a hierarchical approach to rights. In a long line of cases running from Dagenet through Mills and NS, this court has called for a balancing of rights, encouraging judges to define the, their parameters in a manner that recognizes that no one charter right is absolute or capable of trumping others. You, you are making a methodological point. Is it of equal force and efficacy with respect to the analysis under Section 1, or do you confine it to Section 7? Well, we say the rights need to be considered both at Section 7. We do say, unlike the um, position of AG Ontario, we say that this is about balancing rights under Section 7, like was, as was done by this court in Mills. Um, but we also say they do warrant consideration at Section 1 as well. And in our submission... Is the methodology the, the same or is it different? I think it is different. This court in different cases has talked about the terms rights and societal interest and values do get sort of bandied about in the case law of this court in different ways. We know from the decision in Bedford and Carter that societal interests need to be considered at section one. It's our position that that is for sure true in the case of um, arguments about constitutionality in relation to um, instrumental rationality, that a law is grossly disproportionate. Um, but whereas here, the scope of the principles of fundamental justice are not necessarily clearly yet articulated or defined, there is room to think about the ways in which you define those principles of fundamental justice with respect to all the rights. That's what this court did in Mills and in Dara, and that's what we say also has to happen here. Ms. Ms. Stevens, isn't there a difference in, with this, between the situation in Mills and Darrick and this sort of situation where, uh, in, in, in the third-party records context, for example, the legislation 
directly implicates the rights of uh, the complainant. This legislation, like all criminal legislation, does affect the rights or the interests of victims, if you want to put it that way, but really no differently than any other criminal legislation. And so that's why the analysis might be more appropriately under Section 1 rather than under Section 7. Is there any purchase to that distinction? Well, I think that I think it's why you might must also consider the broader um, the broader rights under Section One. But I think that the individual rights of the particular victims in these individual cases are also implicated. To say that the rights to security of the person or equal protection of the law are not implicated when um, in the context of saying, well, you know, there will be no accountability. There we in the context of this case, the principles of fundamental justice were, require that there be um, no criminal liability that attaches. I think the question that needs to get asked has to be different from the question that was asked in Davio. And I think um, when we think about the disproportionate impact of intoxicated violence on women and children, both the particular women and children in a particular case, as well as more broadly as a group, this court should be thinking about whether the principles of fundamental justice allow individuals to be held responsible for harm they cause when they voluntarily become so extremely intoxicated that they're no longer able to respect the physical integrity of others. As this court said in Mills, if fundamental justice embraces more than the rights of the accused, it seems to me there is a need to internally balance rights under Section 7. Um, and if that internal balancing is not appropriate, it really does risk interfering with the ability of governments to legislate in the interest of public safety by limiting risk-taking behavior of individuals. This is particularly true given the very high bar this court, had, court has set for justifying a Section 7 breach. And indeed, that's why in our, in our submission, should this court find there's no room in the Section 7 analysis to consider the rights of women and children, those rights really do need to be given appropriate consideration when assessing whether any breach can be justified under Section 1. There needs to be some place in the analysis where those rights weren't consideration. In our submission, that did not happen in the court below. The rights of women and children were largely missing from the Section 1 analysis of the Court of Appeal, perhaps most glaringly in the majority's rejection of accountability as a pressing and substantial objective. So um, to summarize, our position is that the equality and security rights of women and children have too often been an afterthought in judgments assessing the constitutionality of Section 33.1. We ask you to ensure that these rights are given their due consideration Thank in you. your judgment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stephanie Di Giuseppe. David Sullivan tried to kill himself by taking what the trial judge referred to as a massive overdose of Welbutrin, a common prescription drug. He did not die. Instead, he fell into a toxic psychosis and he stabbed his mother. At the end of the trial, the trial judge found that David Sullivan did not intend to hurt anyone and that he did not act voluntarily. On that basis, he would have acquitted him if it weren't for Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code. Instead, David Sullivan was convicted of aggravated assault. The Ontario Court of Appeal thought that this was wrong 
and that the criminal code should not invent intention to hurt people where the defendant has none. That is the context for the appeal brought by the Crown today. I will be making submissions today on behalf of both respondents on the application of Section 7 and 11D to this case. Mr. Gourlay for Thomas Chan will make submissions on Section 1 on behalf of both respondents. And finally, Ms. Robitaille will make submissions on remedy for Mr. Chan. My job today before you is made somewhat easier by the fact that the appellant has conceded that if you don't accept what I would characterize as an unavailable interpretation of Section 33.1, the section necessarily breaches the Charter. It's clear well, it nece- that... It necessarily limits a Charter right. And then we go to Section 1 to determine if it's, if it's a limit that is not demonstrably justified and is therefore an infringement. Yes, exactly. Clearly, the interpretation of Section 33.1 is an important issue. Nonetheless, I'd like to make three points before you this afternoon. Uh, The first is that the Davio case was correctly decided and that it is controlling, particularly because the appellant has not asked you to overrule it. The second point I'll make today is that when you're putting Section 33.1 through constitutional muster, you must therefore do so through the principles. Well, actually... they didn't, but I'm, I think Leaf has just asked us to do so. That was how I understood her submissions. Has, has asked us to do what? I'm sorry, Justice Rowe, I don't think I heard your whole question. No, it was really a comment, and that is that uh, I think that the, the, ne- the necessary implication of uh, the submissions on behalf of Leaf is that we should... Uh, look at what was dealt with in Davio, apply a different methodology, and therefore perhaps arrive at a different conclusion. Now, you know, that's an intervener. I don't want to deflect you from what you're saying. I beg your pardon. No, no, I appreciate the comment, uh, Justice Rowe. I agree that Leaf in uh, the comments, particularly at the end of their submissions, suggested that the interpretive framework used by this court uh, with regard to Section 7 in Davio was wrong and suggested that there should be a different outcome, which is a request for this court to to overrule Davio. It doesn't come from a party. Uh, in any event, I could take this opportunity to say that I, uh, in my submission, the internal balancing uh, framework that Leaf put for, puts forward is wrong. I agree first with you, Justice Rowe, that it is generally incoherent to put those values into Section 7 for all the reasons you said in your question uh, earlier today. I also agree with Justice Jamal that the Mills or Dagenes framework are both irrelevant to what this court is doing. Those are situations where we have two private individuals whose charter rights come into conflict, not situations where we have a single individual's charter rights versus the state. Uh, So to the extent that there's some balancing in that framework, it's irrelevant to this. Finally, I would just note uh, that to do what Leaf urges upon you would significantly water down charter protections for accused individuals by giving other interests two kicks at the can effectively under Section 7 and Section 1. In my submission, the Oaks test has withstood the test of time, uh, and it is the proper place for the considerations LEAF puts forward, which are, of course, important. So just to get back to my road mapping, uh, the second issue that I'm going to address today is that when you're putting 33.1 through constitutional muster, you have to construe it through Davio uh, for two reasons, both because 33.1 and the Leary rule are functionally identical. 
Uh, and because 33.1 offends the presumption of innocence and principles of fundamental justice in the same way the Leary rule does. My final point is that the law, the law requires that David Sullivan be acquitted. So the respondents say that the Davio case was correctly decided and that it is controlling. We must ask ourselves, what does Davio stand for? Broadly, I say it stands for the proposition that taking away people's ability to show courts that they did not commit the essential elements of the offenses they are charged with is wrong. More specifically, Davio says that self-induced intoxication cannot stand in for the essential elements of general intent and voluntariness to convict people of intent-based offenses. This is the ratio of Davio. But Davio also stands for the idea that there are ways that Parliament could legislate in this area which would be constitutional. The Davio majority lays out the problems with the Leary rule and specifically invites Parliament to solve those problems through constitutional legislation, through legislating an offense of criminal intoxication or dangerous intoxication cause bodily harm. The problem that brings us all here today, of course, is that Parliament failed to do that. The comments in the Davio decision were an attempt at healthy dialogue between this court and parliament, like we've seen in the third party records context. Can I ask? But that, of course. If the crowns that have spoken were right about, or if we were to, to agree with the crowns about um, reading in or interpreting or whatever sort of exercise, by whatever exercise we, we, we fasten on a negligence standard, a foreseeability standard, um, then does that address putting aside where Mr. Sullivan fits into that? Does that address your general concern about this section? Of course, it's my position that that interpretation is unavailable. I understand but that. The premise, but let's yes, say we yes. disagreed with you. Absolutely. No, in my submission, that would not solve the constitutional problem for two reasons. Okay. The first is that the provision convicts people of the wrong thing. It offends the principle in Martineau that the stigma and punishment of criminal conviction should be proportionate to the gravity of the offense. And so... Um, intentional violence and inadvertent violence are not the same thing. And in fact, in some ways, it does discredit to the opprobrium we have for intentional violence to suggest that they are the same thing. I'll, I'll give you an example. If somebody hits somebody else with their vehicle, we, it would be almost laughable for us to go to that person and say, we're going to convict you of assault. That person would say, but I didn't assault anyone. I didn't intentionally uh, apply force to anyone. And if we just right, went right. back... That's why we, we have said, impaired driving causing death instead of murder. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly, Justice Brown. If we went back and we said, well, you have the constitutionally minimal level of mens rea and you caused harm, so let's just, let's just convict you uh, of assault, that would offend something core uh, about our democratic uh, values and the way that we look at culpability in Canada. And so those two things aren't the same thing. That's why an offense of criminal intoxication or dangerous intoxication would solve the Martineau problem. 
Uh, the other problem is that the Crown asks you to read in reasonable foreseeability of extreme intoxication, and they conflate that idea with reasonable foreseeability of harm. And in that way, they offend the principle that comes uh, from this court in cases like Creighton, that yes, while there doesn't have to be exact symmetry between the mens rea and the consequences, there has to be some sort of necessary link. I mean, that comes from Davio and it comes from other cases. The problem with the Crown's position first, and I believe this was recognized in some of the questions earlier today, is that it's ambiguous about what they mean by extreme intoxication. So is it enough to just know I can get very, very drunk? Um, if we think about it this way, if I could give an example using my own client, David Sullivan. David Sullivan, um, we could think about what happened to him using a metaphor about a train. So if I'm taking, for example, the train to Ottawa, I know that I'm going to pass through Cornwall, I'm going to pass through Belleville, uh, but if I get on the express train to Ottawa, and uh, no offense to anyone who lives in Ottawa in this room, but in my analogy, Ottawa in the, for David Sullivan is death. He's, he's trying to die. Uh, so if I'm on the express train to Ottawa, I don't reasonably expect to stop in Belleville or in Cornwall. I'm on the express train. I took two fistfuls of Wellbutrin. Uh, what happened to David Sullivan wasn't that the train stopped early. It's that the train derailed completely, and it went off into this extremely rare, extremely complex psychiatric state that no one could have uh, foreseen. Well, just a moment, and please. Just a moment. I, let's, I, I may have the facts wrong, and you'll correct me if I do, but as I understand it, <clears throat> on two previous occasions, he was assessed at the hospital for psychotic symptoms from taking Wellbutrin. Two, psychosis is listed as a possible symptom of the drug's warning label in the U.S. Now, whether or not he would have been made aware of that, I don't know. But you're starting off with a proposition that this isn't the first time that he has suffered from at least psychotic symptoms from this Wellbutrin. So, so that's number one. Number two, you said it would be wrong for us to read in the kinds of things we've been talking about because it would convict the person of the wrong thing disproportionately. And um, so that's number one. And I'm asking you how. How could a finding of guilt based on penal negligence somehow be disproportionate to a finding of guilt where there's at least some intent. Why would, we, why would the person get more for being convicted of an offense that's based on penal negligence than someone who is, has the requisite intent, knows what they're doing, and uh, gets convicted for that reason? So perhaps you could just answer that one first, and then maybe we'll go to the second about reasonable foreseeability of um, intoxication. To your first point, uh, Justice Moldaver, this principle comes from Martineau and it's affirmed in Creighton at page 59, uh, where Justice McLaughlin says, as stated in Martineau, um, 
excuse me, the mens rea of a criminal offense may be subjective or objective, subject to the principles of fundamental justice that the moral fault of the offense must be proportionate to its gravity and penalty. And so what I say is that there is a difference between people who cause harm intentionally and people who cause harm inadvertently, and that that difference should be recognized in our law. Why wouldn't it be? Why couldn't it be in terms of the sentence that's imposed? It could be recognized in terms of the sentence. Sentencing is a fluid and variable exercise that depends on a lot of factors. There's no uh, guarantee that a sentence for inadvertent versus intentional conviction, one will be less than the other necessarily. But I think it's also important what the person is convicted of. That's my earlier example. We don't uh, convict people uh, who are guilty only of dangerous driving of assault because we recognize that there's something different. Uh, there's a there's a there's just in common sense there's a practical difference between intending to hurt someone and um, a negligence based offense where there is no intention to harm others. I think to cloud that distinction in our law would be a break between our law and common sense. The common sense way that people view the difference between intentionally hurting another person and um, causing another person harm by virtue of negligence. To your question about David Sullivan, it is important. The Crown put forward to you earlier today uh, that there was a factual finding that Mr. Sullivan knew that he could become psychotic, and that that's not there in the decision. If you look at their condensed book at tab 12, they've highlighted certain elements from the judgment in Sullivan at page 98. They find that David Sullivan knew there was a risk he could get high, so a risk of intoxication. And then at page 99, highlighted on the page, you'll find the penultimate conclusion, which is that he was aware Wellbutrin could cause him to become impaired. So my submission is that that's not the same thing, to understand that you could become impaired and to understand a complex mental state like psychosis are two very different things. So that, that's my first problem with the Crown's, the way the Crown, what the Crown's put forward to you and to answer your question about whether it could be constitutional. The second issue I take with the Crown's position is that they've sort of distorted the marked departure test to leave out some really important elements of it. So the marked departure test asks whether there's been a marked departure from the standard of care of a reasonable person. And when we talk about reasonable people, we have to understand that reasonable in that test is shorthand for a person who takes reasonable precaution for the safety of others. We must be rigorous to distinguish between reasonable precaution for the safety of others and, and the word reasonableness as it's used colloquially or in all of its everyday applications. So for example, people make decisions all the time that are colloquially unreasonable. They smoke cigarettes, they bet the farm on the underdog, they leave a promising career on Bay Street to become a criminal defense lawyer. There's all sorts of unreasonable things that people do. But those things do not create an intolerable level of risk to the safety of those around them. And that's what we should be looking for when we talk about reasonable in the marked departure standard. And taking intoxicants may not be a reasonable decision in the broad sense of that word. It could make you sick. It's illegal. You might get caught and go to jail. You might have an effect that you don't enjoy. It's not reasonable that way. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it always and in every circumstance creates an intolerable risk to the safety of the people around you. It seems to me, with respect, that when you get yourself 
into what I call a psychotic state. As it seems to be that both of the respondents before us were in. That's just, uh, it's like walking around, you know, just with a loaded gun. And, and you know, that, and that's what we're talking about, it seems to me, here. It's a good analogy, Justice Moldaver, but I want you to think about it this way. Context matters. It is irresponsible. It is a marked departure for someone who's touching a gun for the first time to shoot off a shot in the middle of Times Square, even if they don't intend to hit anybody. It is less irresponsible and probably not a marked departure for an expert marksman to shoot a gun in a shooting range. And so the problem with the appellant's position is that it doesn't distinguish between those kind of contexts. So for example, um, it is certainly uh, a marked departure to take LSD when you're on a hunting trip with your buddies. Is it a marked departure to take LSD under the care of a psychiatrist in a controlled setting? Is it a marked departure to take LSD alone at your cabin in the middle of the woods with your keys locked in a safe and you know nobody's coming by? Those are the kinds of questions that we can't distinguish between on the Crown's interpretation. And to go back to the hunting trip with your buddies example, certainly it's a marked departure to take LSD on a hunting trip. Is it a marked departure to smoke cannabis, especially if you're someone who smokes cannabis all the time when you're on a hunting trip? And so that's why I say that there's a problem with what the Crown puts forward to you, this idea that reasonable people do not use illegal intoxicants or abuse legal ones, because actually the test is context specific. And you don't have to take my word for this. I'd refer you again to the Creighton decision. In that decision, uh, this is on page 75, it's in my condensed book at tab 15, but I don't think you have to turn to it. Justice McLaughlin was uh, applying the marked departure test to the act of Mr. Creighton in injecting another person with cocaine. And in the context of injecting another person with cocaine, which Justice McLaughlin described as a dangerous drug, Justice McLaughlin doesn't say this is patently unreasonable. This would always be a marked departure. Justice McLaughlin puts that act through the rigors of the test and says, at the very least, a person administering a dangerous drug like cocaine to another has a duty to inform himself as to the precise risk the injection entails and refrain from administering it unless reasonably satisfied that there was no risk of harm. So that's another problem with my friend's uh, position that they put forward to you. It doesn't allow to distinguish between the actual risk of harm. Uh, if there is a 1 in 10,000% chance that I would have a euphoric delusional experience on a drug, but a 1 in 10 million chance that I would have an aggressive psychotic experience on the drug, that's a real disconnect. Reasonable Canadians proceed with activities where there is a one in 10 million chance of harm to others all the time. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's, it's an example that I think has merit for what we're discussing. The other issue with the way my friends have postulated the test here is they take the, they take the uh, articulation that this court has put forward about the marked departure test 
did, uh, would a reasonable person in the acute shoes perceive a risk and take steps to avoid it? And they act as if it could just be any risk. So they can put in the risk of extreme intoxication. But no, the marked departure standard is concerned about perceiving, again, a risk of harm to others. And so for all the reasons I've said, we can't just equate the risk of intoxication with the risk of harm to others. So what, what would a good test look like is probably what you want to ask me next. Uh, in my submission, a good, text, a good test would be a context-specific inquiry that would examine three factors. First, the nature of the substance and what its known effects are. The second, the context in which the substance was taken. Did the person take reasonable precautions to ensure the safety of others when they took the drug? And the third would be the user's experience with the drug in the past, very similar to what this court has already said in Javin Marty about um, information known to an individual being relevant on a modified objective test. The last point I'd like to make could about I, this. Could, could I just ask you a question, please? Um, and, and that is, you refer in paragraph six of your factum to the US evidence that uh, people on Wellbutrin have attempted suicide. Um, where does that factor into the analysis here? Because uh, I don't know if there's any evidence that perhaps the suicide attempt here was actually brought, might have been brought on by the Wellbutrin, or whether it was sort of an, an, a voluntary intentional act in and of itself. It's an interesting question, Justice Jamal. The trial judge rejected the argument that the uh, suicide attempt was brought on by the Wellbutrin, but he rejected it from my understanding of the judgment because uh, Mr. Sullivan did not discharge his onus to call expert evidence on that point. And so we may never know the answer to your question of whether consuming the drug uh, caused David Sullivan to be suicidal, and then that suicide, of course, caused potentially uh, the psychosis. Because it's important to note that taking Wellbutrin at your prescribed dose can trigger one of these events. And I understand that the Crown has now done a complete about-face from their position at the Court of Appeal and said that those things wouldn't be caught by the test. But on the Bouchard-Lebrun interpretation of the test, which is controlling, they absolutely would be. I mean, I've, I've not really addressed statutory interpretation at this point yet, but it is absolutely my submission that reading a marked departure standard into this test, first of all, the Crown's version of a marked departure test isn't a marked departure test. It would not pass constitutional muster. Uh, but two, it's an unavailable reading of the provision to read that in. And I'm going to turn to that in a moment. I want to make one uh, last point. If I've, if I've sufficiently asked, answered your question, Justice Jamal, I'll turn and make uh, one last point on the marked departure test. Pardon me. There's one last thing I wanted to say in response to Justice Jamal's question. Taking Wellbutrin as prescribed... The idea that that could catch people within this um, within this vitiation of the defense, I, I think, is abhorrent to people in a lot of ways. It's a repugnant idea. It's one of the reasons that the section is unfair. Catching people who commit suicide because of the effects of their prescription drugs or for other reasons, as I'll say a bit later in my submission, is another such example of that. 
So the, the final point I'd like to make on the marked departure test is that the idea of tolerable level of risk has to be assessed with reference to what real Canadian, Canadians actually do. Many Canadians, as we know, do use illegal drugs and abuse legal drugs. And I can refer you, please, to the Empowerment Council Factum, paragraphs 9 to 10, uh, Mr. Chan's Factum at paragraph 71 to 74, and my Factum at paragraph 54, where, which pull out a number of interesting uh, social factors to consider when considering this question. More than 50% of Canadians have tried a drug that is not marijuana. Uh, our government sees their use as tolerable in quite a number of ways. There is a move towards decriminalization of some of these substances that's put forward in those paragraphs. And of course, this court sees their use as tolerable in some circumstances as well. And we get that from the PPHS decision, for example. And so reasonable Canadians proceed in the face of very low levels of risk of bodily harm to others every day. And we need to look at what real Canadians do to understand how that test should be interpreted. Of course, the, uh, the appellant's version of the test doesn't allow for that. Now, I'd like to turn to I'd like to intervene here, if I may. You've articulated that uh, you're saying a good test would be contextual and take into account three factors that that you've put forward. Um, As you know, there's been different discussions about viable, constitutionally viable alternatives. Uh, Justice Corey put some forward in Davio. Obviously, all the external evidence in the parliamentary committees uh, address different things. But the Barreau de Quebec uh, proposed something that was not accepted, um, obviously, in 33.1. But what they were suggesting was that in Section 33.1, um, there would be an, the inclusion of the words having regard to the personal circumstances of the accused in the case. And that would come in where the accused having regard to the personal circumstances of the accused in the case. And I'm wondering if if you've uh, considered that alternative and whether you think that that would be, um, I guess, a way of expressing a contextual standard that would take into, under the circumstances of the case, the three factors that you've outlined for us. Uh, Thank you for that question. Of course, I'll point out the obvious first, even though everybody knows this. Parliament rejected that. That's not what Parliament did. Uh, But it doesn't mean that it's not constitutionally compliant, right? Parliament didn't choose it, but... uh... Yes, uh, and that's, that brings me to sort of this, my second point um, that I wanted to point out just from your question, Justice Martin, which is that I don't say that this is a good test in the sense that um, it's one of many good tests and Parliament ought to have done it for um, legislator, like legislator-like reasons. I say that this is the minimum test that would pass constitutional muster and not offend the principles in Davio and in a canon of cases that Davio is built on and that Davio has been affirmed in. The uh, to answer your question, no, I don't think that just adding that factor in would be enough. There has to be, as I've said in my submissions, a reasonable foreseeability of bodily harm. There does not have to be exact symmetry with the consequences. Of course, we know that. But there has to be some link uh, between the prohibited conduct um, 
uh, sorry, excuse me, between the mens rea and the actual consequence. So there's many things Parliament could have done to allow this court to read in that kind of link. Parliament could have said when a person renders themselves um, so intoxicated that they lose conscious control over their actions and don't have mens rea. And then um, uh, in circumstances where harm to others was foreseeable, this court could have read in all of those good standards that this court has developed to protect the innocent. But unfortunately, Parliament specifically precluded um, this court's ability to read in the common law. Uh, so that takes me to the issue of statutory interpretation. The uh, Justice Moldaver, I think you expressed it very well uh, when you said that the appellant is asking this court to legislate. The appellant is effectively asking this court to read in elements that are against the express meaning of a very plainly worded section. So first, of course, uh, as everybody knows, the court has already decided the issue of what the elements of 33.1 are in Bouchard-Lebrun at paragraph 89. That is an authoritative statement, and there's no basis to disturb it. Also important from Bouchard-Lebrun at paragraph 34, this court has already commented on what Parliament's purpose was in enacting the section, saying that Parliament enacted 33.1 to ensure that intoxication may never be used as a defense against general intent violent crimes such as sexual assault and assault. If I could take you to the appellant's condensed book, at tab nine, we have a portion from Minister Rock that is very important, where Minister Rock says, while we are creating a legislative standard of care, it is not the case that the Crown Attorney will have to prove in each case that there was a departure from the standard. It is not the case that the standard is open to different interpretations depending on who is prosecuting, who is judging, and where the case is being tried. We are stating in Bill C-72 conclusively that intoxicating yourself to the point at which you lose conscious control and harm others is a departure from the standard of care. So Justice Brown, you're completely right uh, earlier today to call the section a statutory deeming provision where uh, a marked departure is deemed based on the existence of two facts. One, that the person was in a state, and while is a very important word there. Uh, again, Justice Brown, you're correct. We're talking about something that's already happened. So while in a state uh, of self-induced intoxication, that renders, it's the state that renders the person, it's not the person themselves, uh, that renders the person unable to control their own actions or to have mens rea, they commit an assaultive act. Whenever these two things coexist, extreme intoxication and violence, the deeming provision comes in to preclude judges from applying the common law marked departure test. I think that's crystal clear on the wording of the provision, and this court would have to engage in mental gymnastics to read it any other way. What if we were to give the word self-induced a broader interpretation, an interpretation that would include the kinds of things that we are concerned about, 
And by the way, while we're on that, if I understand the Crown correctly, they have taken the position that this test excludes objectively unforeseeable intoxication and foreseeable risks a reasonable person would have taken. So your example of 10 million versus 100 million or whatever it is, according to the Crown, wouldn't be caught if that's what we're talking about. But let us I think we should get a little bit more real than that. And when you're taking these drugs that uh, uh, everyone knows or should know, you know, can lead to psychotic conditions where you are completely out of touch with reality. Um, what's wrong with um, finding uh, liability um, based on the fact that these people are known to engage in violent conduct? They have no idea what they're doing. They're killing the devil. Uh, in my in my example uh, with the ten thousand and the one million, ten thousand was the risk of uh, psych of a psychotic effect, and one million was the risk of a violent psychotic effect. So ten thousand uh, in the crowns example that that would be caught because they don't differentiate between uh, the potential of psychosis and the potential of psychotic violence. Uh, in terms of the the um, question about these drugs like crystal meth and PCP, where there is, even though very, very few Canadians take these drugs, we don't have the exact numbers. Uh, One of the studies cited by one of the attorney generals puts the American numbers at below 0.2% of the population. Uh, Even though these things are very rare, yes, psychosis may frequently occur. Those things would be caught by a constitutional provision. The problem is not that 33.1 catches the bad guys, it's that it catches the bad guys and the good guys, or the at least inadvertent, uh, those who inadvertently cause harm or who do not create an intolerable risk for the safety of others. To your question, Justice Moldaver, of whether we can read extreme into the provision, whether so we can take section one, which is the operative provision, which has no mention uh, of the idea that the intoxication is extreme, only modifies intoxication with the word self-induced. In my submission, that would be a, a impermissible level of reading in. It would be, uh, to, use your, to use your term earlier, it would be this court legislating to add the word extreme into subsection one of the provision where it appears nowhere. In choosing the word self-induced intoxication, Parliament chose a um, phrase that was well known at the time from cases like Hanish and King, from Davio itself, from Penno. It's a clear term. And if you uh, take a look at the legislative record, I've given some references in my factum to a number of places where it's clear that Parliament meant to invoke that test. They meant to exclude involuntary intoxication, for example, a spiked drink, situations where people were tricked. But Parliament's broad purpose, which is to catch everyone, as Bouchard Lebrun has already found, uh, and as is supported by the preamble, and as is supported um, by the parliamentary record, that purpose to catch everyone is manifested in the deeming provision in subsection two. If you look at the preamble, Parliament says twice, it's necessary for us to deem 
a basis of fault. It's necessary because it's Parliament's purpose to preclude reading in of the common law. Now, I believe you have... Right. Can, I just, can I just follow up on Justice Maldaver's question? I, I think the idea is that the adjective self-induced modifies the standard of care such that it is only breached where extreme self-induced intoxication occurs and violence results. I think that's the argument that your friends are making. That the standard of care is breached when extreme... Well, I suppose my submission on that is that that is not what the provision says. The provision just... The provision, first of all, the operative section is subsection one, which refers only to self-induced intoxication. The reference in subsection two is in a passive part of the phrase. It starts with the word well while, which connotes a temporal connection between these two events and not any form of agency uh, in terms of what the accused person did or intended to do. If Parliament had wanted to create that requirement, they could have done it quite plainly and easily. They could have said it is a marked departure from a standard of care when a person renders themselves uh, incapable of consciously controlling their behavior or forming mens rea through um, self-induced intoxication. And that structure, or self-induced, excuse me, extreme intoxication. And so there are structures that were available. We can only assume that they were purposefully not chosen. Sorry, Mr. I'd like to... Sorry, just, I, don't you have to read the last words of sub one? Because they relate it directly to departed markedly from a standard of care as defined. So why are we reading that out of sub one when we're considering what self-induced means? It's my submission that the um, we don't we don't read it out of section one. Of course, we have our statutory deeming provision in subsection two, and that that's that what that deeming provision means by self-induced is what the law has always said that terms means, that the drug was taken or the intoxicant was taken voluntarily, that it does not uh, connote a mental element of reasonable foreseeability. Reasonable foreseeability and voluntariness are different things and self-induced very plainly at the time in the jurisprudence and continuing to this day means that the person took the intoxicant voluntarily. I don't have to have any sort of active mental state, an objective mental state of foreseeability of harm, an intention or recklessness to do something voluntarily. So to do that would be to read in something more than what Parliament has put forward for you very plainly in the provision intentionally, uh, and the parliamentary record supports that. Now, I'd like to turn very briefly to my final submission, uh, which is that the law requires that David Sullivan be acquitted. When David Sullivan attempted suicide, he did not intend to harm anyone except himself. To convict him of an intentional act of violence against his mother is unfair, unjust, and unreasonable. The evidence of automatism in this case was so overwhelming it was conceded. We know David Sullivan is a vulnerable person who has had a difficult life with abuse. He's been a victim of crime. And when he chose to end his life, he did not do so in a way that was objectively dangerous, like jumping off an overpass or uh, running his car into oncoming traffic. He took an overdose in his own home. 
Criminalizing the involuntary and unintended consequences of his suicide attempt serves no public or penological purpose. No deterrence is possible. If you're not deterred by your own death, you are not deterred by a remote possibility of criminal sanction. To the extent that this law has the capacity to criminalize vulnerable people um, when they do not intend or voluntarily choose harm, it is an unjust law with unjust results. I see my time is up. If I could just have 30 seconds. Go ahead. Um, thank you. Uh, just two quickly, two final points. First, if the court accedes to the appellant's interpretation and their marked departure standard, Mr. Sullivan either should be acquitted because the facts of this case cannot support such a finding, or he should be given a new trial where that test is applied. Secondly, my submissions on section 52 are important and can be found in my factum at paragraphs 80 to 102. If the court agrees with me and those who join me in them, my client should be acquitted because he never should have been convicted in the first place. The judge exceeded his jurisdiction and convicted on a law that was not on the books at the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. The court will take a 10 minutes break. The court, la cour. Thank you. Be seated, please. Mr. Gourley. Good afternoon, Chief Justice. Uh, our client, uh, Thomas Chan, did something horrible when he was not in his right mind. Uh, but not every tragedy has a villain. The Crown, in our case, has never been able to articulate why Thomas Chan, in particular, needs to be convicted and punished as a criminal. Their position seems mainly to hinge on other hypothetical people who should be punished or deterred. So our position on Section 1 is simple. If this law mandates Thomas Chan's condemnation as a criminal in the circumstances of this case, then the law is bad and it is not justifiable under Section 1. I say that flows from the principle that wrongful convictions of any number and of any kind are too High or too high a price to pay for any social good, but I'll go on to explain to you why the alleged benefits of this law are far overstated by the, by the Crown and dramatically outweigh its prejudicial effects on individuals like Mr. Chan. Then my colleague, Ms. Robitaille, will address you on the remedy issue of why the court should enter a quit, an acquittal uh, in place of the new trial ordered by the Court of Appeal. So on, on section one, this court will be keenly aware of the fact that it's never upheld a justification, uh, a limitation of section seven as demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And we say that this case should certainly not be the first. Uh, some rights limitations obviously can be in principle demonstrated and in principle that includes section seven limitations. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But some in limitations are of a kind that simply cannot be justified. And conviction of the morally innocent, and by that I mean those who lack a con constitutionally minimum level of fault, that's one of those incursions on fundamental justice that just simply cannot be justified. And we say that this is true, as I said, no matter the countervailing considerations. Now, Justice Martin's exchange 
with counsel for the AG of Saskatchewan was instructive uh, in, in this respect in my submission, because as uh, the as Justice Martin commented about the uh, the passage at the end of the Saskatchewan factum, it would be a shocking proposition if a wrongful conviction was something that could simply be weighed in the balance in on one basket in a proportionality analysis. Fortunately, that's not the law in Canada. So let's consider Thomas Chan in particular. The judge now, we've, we heard different things from, from the Crown earlier about, about foreseeability in this case. And I concede that because of the way the trial shook out, the judge at the, um, at the conviction stage was not required to make specific findings on foreseeability. But he does say in his reasons for sentence, at paragraph 20 of the reasons for sentence, the trial judge says that Mr. Chan's psychosis and his violent conduct was not foreseeable. Now let's look at what Justice McLaughlin said in Creighton. And I'm in my, my friend's condensed book, the appellant's condensed book, at page 36, which is in tab four. And, and this, in my submission, is just virtually dispositive of the result of Mr. Chan's case, uh, in, in, given what the trial judge found. Justice McLaughlin says this, and, and keep in mind, in Creighton, Justice McLaughlin is speaking for the five judges who would take a more lax approach or a more generous to the state approach of the foreseeability requirement uh, for, uh, for manslaughter. In the, in the view of the majority, objective foreseeability of bodily harm is enough, but objective foreseeability of bodily harm is required. And this is what Justice McLaughlin says at page 48 of the Supreme Court report. It would shock the, the public's conscience to think that a person could be convicted of manslaughter absent any moral fault based on foreseeability of harm, full stop. Well, that's exactly the position that Mr. Chan finds himself in today, uh, convicted of manslaughter, absent any finding of foreseeable harm. And that's in my submission enough uh, to show uh, you in this case that his conviction cannot stand. If section 33.1 really mandates that result, well then section 33.1 does not contain a constitutionally adequate uh, fault element and needs to be struck down. And we say that that's exactly what section 33.1 requires. That's what the trial judge thought in this case. That's what every judge in the quarter century that this law has been on the books has thought, including this court and Bouchard Lebrun, has thought that section 33.1 required. And we say that no amount of creative reinterpretation can reinvent what parliament clearly said and clearly intended, that the level of fault is irrelevant if the person gets into a self-induced state of intoxication and commits an act of violence. And so we say on the section one analysis, you don't know what, and this is the passage that Justice Brown uh, took one of my friends to earlier today, you don't need to go further than this. What, what Justice Corey for the majority in a binding majority judgment of this court that nobody has asked, no party has asked the court to overrule, Justice Corey says this, I am of the view, page 106 of my, uh, my condensed book and 92 of the Supreme Court report, I am of the view that to deny that even a very minimal mental element is required for sexual assault, 
course, manslaughter would apply to, offends the charter in a manner that is so drastic and so contrary to the principles of fundamental justice that cannot be justified under Section 1 of the charter. Well, uh, what Parliament did was effectively, at least in, in, as it applies to cases like this, enact the Davio dissent that does just that and uh, contravenes what Justice Corey says about the constitutionally minimum fault elements on a Section 1 analysis there. So I, I say you don't need to go any further in the proportionality uh, analysis. It's enough for you to say that the conviction and punishment of people like Thomas Chan, people like David Sullivan, is uh, simply an unacceptable result in a free and democratic country like Canada. And that it's, entire, and it's entirely disproportionate to the what I'm going to suggest are very uh, modest government objectives that are actually furthered by this law. Let, let's say, and I know I'm the one who threw that line out earlier, but, but, but let's say, Mr. Gourley, that uh, we need to go a little further. We want to um, review the Court of Appeals Section 1 analysis. Do you have any specific submissions? And I, I realize there were two different Section 1 analyses. Yes. Who should we prefer for what reasons? I, I, I'm glad you asked, and I do have submissions uh, about that. In my submission, Justice Pachaco was was largely correct in his analysis, and and really the difference between I mean there was a difference at the Section Seven stage between Justice Lowers and Pachaco about which principles of fundamental justice you needed to to look at. I won't engage that at this stage unless you want me to. On Section One, really the the big difference was their treatment of this so-called accountability purpose that is one of two purposes the government has put forward to, uh, to justify 33.1. The other one being the, the so-called protective purpose. Now, Justice Pachaco says the accountability purpose fails right out of the starting gate because it's, it's real when it's properly characterized. Um, its real purpose is to ascribe criminal culpability in precisely those circumstances where the court in Davio said that that was contrary to fundamental justice. So those people who lack the, the quality of moral agency because of their uh, uh, totally distorted state of mind, they lack the ability to form uh, criminal intent. This legislation um, intends to ascribe precisely those people what it calls accountability. And I, since I have to say I'm bothered by, I mean, effectively a conclusion that Parliament was being disingenuous as to its stated purpose. I mean, the, the, that it's, um, I mean, you, you describe it as, in, in your factum, as rhetorical cover for Parliament's main purpose, which is to overturn Davio. Um, I... I, I think that we have to give the stated purpose of Parliament, which represents the, the, the corporate expression of that institution, um, we have to give it a little bit more consideration than that, I think, just other than saying, well, there's a real purpose beneath this. Parliament's trying to pull the, the wool over the court's eyes. I mean, maybe this was their purpose, and maybe the means by which they sought to achieve it was was wrong or unconstitutional. But but um, I I'm I'm very leery about 
kind of looking behind a stated purpose within legislation. That's fair, and this is certainly not the the hill I need to die on here. I mean, I do. I what I will say in defense of what uh, Justice Pachaco did was that I don't think he's he's looking behind or or ascribing bad faith to Parliament as much as he's simply casting Parliament's stated purpose in a more concrete, more specified way. Because maybe, maybe but the, but your but 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 your factum made that suggestion, right? Well, it, in okay, referring I'll, to rhetorical I'll, I'll, cover, I'll plead guilty to that. Um, um, no, Justice Pachaco <laughs> says. Um, I mean, he just didn't find the accountability purpose persuasive, as I understand it, because right. all criminal legislation exists to hold offenders accountable. And right. On, on, that, on that very okay. question, my, my colleague asked, Mr. Gourley, have you had a look at Justice Coulard's um, consideration of accountability in the Brown case, where she yes. took a step that Justice Pachaco doesn't appear to have taken by particularizing accountability beyond this general, this, this general indictment that uh, Justice Pachaco levels against it. What, what are your thoughts there? Well, my, and thank you for that, Justice Kassir. I mean, my thoughts are that, you know, if you, if you particularize it, as Justice Kular did in, in Brown, you, 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 you solve the problem of, of tautology in the sense that accountability is is the objective of any criminal law and doesn't give you any anything of substance to go on but you introduce a new problem which is that what i've already said is that um it ascribes accountability in circumstances where the principles of fundamental justice uh, say that that the conditions for criminal culpability are not met so you still have the problem that that Parliament is effectively, and you know, far from ascribing bad motives to them, I think they're pretty they're pretty explicit in the parliamentary speeches that we've we've filed in the Hansard record. They are effectively overruling uh, the majority decision in Davio, and that's a that's that was uh, something that most parliamentarians weren't weren't shy about. That's something. Uh, you know, reasonable people can disagree about. But what their what Parliament intended to do was create accountability in circumstances where Davio say, says it's improper to ascribe accountability. In, in but, fairness, in fairness to Parliament, the, the, isn't it too much to say that Parliament intended to infringe constitutional rights? They, they had advice. We see it in the record that. The, their, the proposed bill was, was constitutional, whether that was good or bad advice. It, it suggests that Parliament's intentions were, were not as lacking in nobility. Well, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to the intention so much as uh, an objective characterization of what they did. But let me just say this. If, if you accept that the accountability objective isn't dead on arrival, that's of no moment to me because in, in my submission, it just is incapable of sustaining a positive finding on the other, on the other elements of the, of the Oaks test. And so it, maybe that's where I ought to spend my last uh, uh, six minutes. Um, in, in, when we talk about, let's talk about public protection for a second, because this is the, this is the, uh, objective that has been most uh, expansively 
urged upon you uh, by my friends from the Crown. And I, I think we need to understand what we mean by public protection when we're talking about the criminal law. We're talking about uh, ensuring that crimes don't take place in the first place, that people don't get hurt by this offending behavior. And, and the criminal law, which is retrospective, which addresses conduct that's already taken place, can only do that through deterrence. And, you know, deterrence is a controversial concept that is disfavored by many criminologists, uh, favored by parliament in many contexts. And usually I, I, I have to tell you, there, there is a sort of a practical experiment that occurs every time the police go on strike about deterrence. Crime just shoots to the roof, and then the police go back on the streets, and somehow it settles down again. And that may be and indicative no, of something. There's no question that the existence of offenses on the books, and more particularly the certainty of, of detection, which in practical terms means police on the streets to, to catch criminals and force the law, does have a deterrent effect in many different circumstances. And policymakers and academics can debate the extent to which that 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 works and is effective. But when constitutional rights are infringed, and this is my real point, uh, we're, we require actual evidence and actual uh, logic based in common sense and evidence. And, and that in my submission is what is wholly lacking here from the, the Crown's, in the Crown's argument on protecting the public through taking away an obscure defense. Um, does anybody really think that a person who's deciding whether to take the drink or the hit that will move them from mere intoxication to potentially extreme intoxication turns their mind to the existence of 33.1 or the legal niceties? Well, they, they might uh, now. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's a pretty low standard. It was stated in Hatterian Brethren. You just need a reasonable prospect that the limit will further the objective to some extent, but not that it has to be, you know, let me to be do so. I mean, well, it, this isn't a thought experiment, though, right? This is a law that's been on the books for 25 years. And in principle, my, my friend should be able to come to you and say, look, it's, it, it's actually deterred some people in their consumption habits. No, no your their, friend doesn't it, have to show you that. Your friend simply has to show a reasonable prospect uh, that it will further the objective. Look at it, on rational connection, on minimal impairment, they yeah. have to show, show more. But let me take you to what Justice Wilson said in Hess, because she, she addressed this exact point in a way that I think was, uh, was uh, very well considered. And this is in our condensed book at page 114. Justice Wilson is addressing the deterrence argument for taking away the mistake of age defense for sexual interference. And um, at page 114, she says, she expresses, the, and this is, she's speaking for, a, I believe, a unanimous court and recalling a previous case where she expressed the view that the premise on which the deterrence arguments are based is not a strong one, since it assumes that before committing the offense, in that case, sexual intercourse, the person will, in fact, address his mind to a fairly obscure provision of the code. Then she says on 115, more importantly, the deterrent effect of the rule cannot readily be documented, and the respondents have not submitted any evidence to support their deterrence argument. Same 
as what we have in our case in my submission. And then she makes the, in my submission the, the most profound point at the bottom of this page, continuing on to 116, that the criminal law has come to recognize that punishing the mentally innocent with a view to advancing particular objectives is fundamentally unfair. It is to use the innocent as a means to an end. And that, in my very respectful submission, is what the Crown is asking you effectively to do with somebody like Thomas Chan and somebody like David Sullivan. They have before the court two individuals, in my client's case, a 19-year-old who's experimenting with mushrooms in his mother's basement, hanging out with friends, and would reasonably anticipate nothing more than having a, a mellow evening uh, with, with the people he cared about. And he ended up having this profoundly unexpected, profoundly shocking reaction that caused him to do something uh, while uh, experiencing a psychotic break. This, is, this goes directly back to what Justice Rowe pointed out earlier in an exchange with one of my friends. We're not talking about just a sliding scale of intoxication where you had one beer too many. We're talking about a difference in kind, not just in degree, between the experience one would anticipate having with, uh, in this case, psilocybin, but it could be another recreational drug, and a profound so psychotic break that causes the individual to completely lose touch with reality and lose the ability to form, uh, to make moral choices. And so we say that if the law requires his conviction in these circumstances, and we say despite the statutory gymnastics that have been proposed to you today, the law does, then the law just cannot be upheld. The benefits, I've tried to explain to you briefly why uh, any uh, hypothetical benefits that this law has haven't been demonstrated in evidence and are not sufficient to require uh, the conviction of the morally innocent like my client. I'm going to turn it over to Ms. Robitaille to address the, uh, the remedy issue if you don't have any more questions. Thank you very much. At this stage of our presentation, I ask that you turn your attention to remedy and the fate of our client, Thomas Chan. I have two submissions. One, if you find the section is unconstitutional, we say that Mr. Chan should be acquitted. We say he should be acquitted on the findings made by the trial judge. Um, that on each of those findings, he's made out the defense of extreme intoxication akin to insanity and a verdict of acquittal is the only result. Uh, that is something, now that is something that the Court of Appeal disagreed with. The majority held that Mr. Chan did not meet the requirements of the defense of extreme intoxication akin to automatism or insanity because he was in a state of psychosis and failed to prove that he was acting in a state of automatism. That is wrong, and I will tell you why in a moment. The second point I would like to make, if there's time, is that if you find that 33.1 is saved under one, or you agree with our friends from the Crown Attorney's Office that it is constitutional, Mr. Chan should be acquitted even on their interpretation of the law. 
Once the Court of Appeal for Ontario struck down 33.1 of the criminal code, the common law defense of extreme intoxication akin to insanity was resurrected. And once applied to the facts of Mr. Chan's case, he should have been acquitted. Instead, the Court of Appeal found that he should have a retrial. And uh, to use the words of uh, uh, Justice Pachaco, that Mr. Chen failed to prove uh, that his state of intoxication, quote, reached the level of automatism. Uh, and indeed, the Court of Appeal found that the defense, the Davio defense, was only available to states of mind uh, like automatism, but not states of mind like Mr. Chan had on the night in question of insanity. We say that the exculpatory elements of the Davio defense were set out completely by this court in 1994. All of them were met by uh, Mr. Chan and nothing in the common law has changed those elements. Uh, reviewing very briefly the key findings of the trial judge. The trial judge found that Mr. Chan had an underlying disease of the mind and that was his traumatic brain injuries after very serious succession successive concussions in the sporting context. He also found that he was in a florid state of psychosis at the time of the events. He believed he was God. He believed his loved ones were demons and that it was judgment day. Justice Boswell heard from two forensic psychiatrists and, and let me review very briefly their evidence. Dr. Chamowitz determined that Mr. Chan met both branches of the NCR test in that he did not appreciate the nature and quality of his actions and that he did not have the capacity to know that his actions were wrong. Dr. Klassen agreed that Mr. Chan met the second branch of the NCR test, uh, but disagreed that he met the first branch of the NCR test. The trial judge found uh, as a fact that Mr. Chan did not have the capacity to know that his actions were wrong, that he met the second branch of the NCR test and made no finding on the first branch of the NCR test. So step back from those findings and let, let's review what it tells us. It, it tells us that Mr. Chan was successful at his trial in displacing the presumption of sanity on a balance of probabilities. He was able to show, and the trial judge made this finding, that he did not have the capacity to know that his actions were wrong. He was insane within the meaning of section 16. And based on Davio, he ought to have been acquitted. Now, what my friends propose and what uh, uh, Justice Pachaco says is that when Justice Corey said, akin to insanity, automatism or insanity, he didn't really mean both branches of insanity. And my friend took you, uh, my friend Ms. Barrett took you to chalk in support of that position. And it is true that on many formulations um, of the NCR regime, um, and the jurisprudence tells us that those who meet the first branch of NCR that do not appreciate the nature and quality of their actions can also be said to be acting involuntarily. But the same cannot be said for those who meet the second branch. I don't disagree with my friend. I would point 
to, to other aspects of chalk that are dispositive in my submission to the analysis. And I ask that you look very carefully at pages 1322 and 1323 of chalk, where the majority uh, tells us that in some cases, an NCR defense will be a denial of the mens rea. In some cases, it will be a denial of the actus reus. But in all cases, the accused is making a more basic claim that goes beyond mens rea or actus reus in a particular case. He is claiming he does not fit within the normal assumptions of a criminal law model because he does not have the capacity for criminal intent. And when Mr. Chan proved on a balance of pro probabilities that he met the second branch, what he proved was he did not have the capacity for criminal intent, and he was insane within the meaning of Section 16. And that is how Justice Corey frames the question in Davio. The very first paragraph in Davio is a question. Can a state of drunkenness, which is so extreme that an accused is in a condition that cl closely resembles automatism or a disease of the mind as it's defined in section 16 of the criminal code? That is the question. It's with very specific reference to section 16. And the judgment goes on to reference a state akin to insanity 15 times throughout the judgment. And there is no reasonable interpretation of the case that would have the uh, second branch of the NCR test carved out of the defense of extreme intoxication akin to insanity. It makes no sense when uh, one looks at the jurisprudence at the time that that is what Justice Corey meant. By the time Davio was decided, uh, this court had already determined Chalk Landry, which is a landmark decision on the second branch of NCR, was determined on January, uh, in January of 1991. And significantly, this is what happens. Davio is argued in 94, uh, and it's released later that year. In between argument and decision, this court heard and decided the case of Uman, the case where Justice McLaughlin again goes through the exercise of defining the second branch of the NCR test, the second branch which calls for an inquiry on the capacity of the accused for rational perception and rational choice. That uh, branch is defined in Uman and would have been uh, very close at at mind to Justice Corey as he's determining the contours of the defense of extreme intoxication akin to insanity. And when this court heard Bouchard-Lebrun, uh, which dealt with an accused who, uh, who alleged that he met the second branch of the NCR test, the court determined that his defense was blocked by section 33.1. Uh, the court also determined at paragraph 35 of your reasons that Davio still represented the state of law in Canada subject to the restrictions set out in 33.1. So we know that there's been no adjustment to the defense from the time 
of Davio to present day. And what my friend is asking you to find uh, in, in my submission is uh, not a reasonable interpretation of um, uh, the state of the law. And it leaves uh, uh, Mr. Chan in an unconstitutional ne netherworld. Because on the one hand, they say that his defense is precluded by operation of 33.1. And on the other hand, they say that it doesn't apply to his state of mind. And I ask uh, this honorable court to reject that submission. The, an interpretation that has Mr. Chan's state of mind, uh, and that is a state of mind uh, discussed uh, earlier by Justice Rowe as a complete psychotic break. He uh, completely misperceived um, the people around him, the world he was living in, and his own self. Uh, an interpretation of the defense that would cover that sort of state of mind is also consistent uh, with this court's analysis uh, in, uh, in Ruzik, where um, we know that involuntary conduct, morally involuntary conduct, uh, should not be punished. And there's also good and practical reasons why we should not be distinguishing between automatons, people who meet the first branch of NCR, and people who meet the second branch of NCR. And uh, let me take you through a couple of good practical reasons. The first is that it reduces the inquiry, we say, to meaningless factual nuances. An automaton will be said to have glassy eyes. A psychotic will be said to have wild eyes. An automaton will be barely verbal. A psychotic will have agitated utterances. And in my submission, those sorts of factual nuances are not the things that criminal responsibility should hang. It sounds and like the difference between being catatonic and hebephrenic, to be uh, technical. Thank you, Justice Rowe. And in practice, what occurs, and, and, I'll, and I'll take you through an analysis looking at um, comparing the, the Sullivan and Chan case, is that it would give an advantage to those accused who are able to claim amnesia. You know, those guys, Justice Rowe, that you represented earlier in your career, where they had no memory of the events. That is the claim made by Mr. Sullivan. And what happened in his case is the psychiatrist, uh, Dr. DeFreitas, who looked at his state of mind and considered which branch of Section 16 he fit under, concluded that she couldn't say. She couldn't say whether he was a first branch guy or a second branch guy because he had no memory of the event. But she was satisfied that he met the requirements generally of Section 16 and that he was incapable of forming criminal intent. And on that basis, the trial judge found that he was acting in an involuntary way and used that language throughout the trial judgment. Uh, in our case, uh, uh, Mr. Chan uh, gave a, a full... Uh, statement to the police and provided um, a terrible traumatic detail of his uh, memory of, of the events. And on that basis, um, Dr. Klassen concluded um, that he did not meet 
the first branch of the NCR test. And most psych psychotics, most people suffering from psychosis will meet the second, but not uh, the first branch of the test. And it's very important. There's nothing in this court's jurisprudence that suggests that these branches are on a hierarchy, that some accused are entitled to more protection uh, of the regime than others. They are two parallel branches. And the, the majority decision uh, of the Court of Appeal proposes a hierarchical vision of Section 16 uh, that is not supported in the case law. Ms. Robitaille, may I just interrupt you here? Yeah. I, I understand the substance of your argument, but it's premised on us hearing a cross appeal by Mr. Chan. And I'm wondering if you could direct us to uh, our jurisdiction to, in fact, do so. Thank you. Um, the jurisdiction to hear the cross appeal is uh, pursuant to 695 sub 1, where uh, we say uh, you should take a broad interpretation of that section that you're entitled to make any order that is necessary to give effect to your judgment. Um, that's what this court did in JF uh, when it substituted an acquittal uh, for a retrial and a cross appeal of an accused on a crown appeal. And um, on that basis, we say that this appeal is properly before you. The Crown's brought an appeal. We are here. We ask that you make uh, an appropriate order uh, in the circumstances. There's nothing in this court's jurisprudence that tells you that you're not able to do so. Uh, my friend has pointed to a body of case law that, in my submission, applies um, to the Crown uh, on cross-appeal, uh, not to the accused, and you see that in Warsing, um, which you'll find at tab 19 of our uh, condensed book. And so uh, we say that you're, you, you are entitled to order an acquittal. If you find that you do not have the jurisdiction, the fallback position is that you can order a stay of proceedings. And we know that you can order a stay of proceedings. You've done it in Ryan. You did it most recently in RV. You retain uh, the jurisdiction under 686 sub 8 uh, to make that order. And, and if you are inclined to consider that remedy, um, I ask that you envision Mr. Chan's retrial. And what will occur on Mr. Chan's retrial is the Crown will turn around and take the position that they forcefully railed against at his first trial, and they will attempt to argue that he was NCR. And Mr. Chan will attempt to get the acquittal that he was deprived of the first go around. And all of the evidence that he led in order to keep himself out of prison, the evidence of his concussions, his learning disability, his depression, um, highly, highly private personal evidence that he led in order to uh, escape incarceration will be forked and foisted upon him at a retrial, and we say that is unfair. Um, in my final couple of minutes, I want to address, unless there are any questions, uh, our submission that Chan, Mr. Chan, Mr. Thomas Chan should be acquitted on the Crown's reformulation of Section 33.1. The risk of extreme intoxication was not foreseeable. That was the uh, very specific finding made by the trial judge uh, on his sentencing, and it was amply supported. 
amply supported on the trial record. The Crown led an expert toxicologist who testified to these uncontroversial facts that magic mushrooms were, quote, quite a safe drug. They produce a sense of peacefulness and tranquility. They produce muscular weakness. They've been used for centuries, if not thousands of years in religious and mystical contexts. They pr produce pleasant psychedelic experiences in most people. Uh, most people experience pleasant pseudo hallucinations. Uncommonly full hallucinations occur. Bad trips, including high anxiety, fearfulness and aggressiveness are less reported and not frequent. The trial judge found that Mr. Chan's uh, experience with magic mushrooms was limited and positive. Uh, he was a teenager and there was no way, even on an objective assessment, on the evidence brought to trial by the Crown with their own expert, for Mr. Chan to predict or appreciate the risk of ingesting magic mushrooms on December 27th, 2015 would lead him into a state of mind where he lost complete grip over reality, uh, the identity of his loved ones and his own self. The drug robbed him of criminal capacity. And since it did, he cannot be convicted. It's an unconstitutional result. And those are my submissions on remedy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Eric Neubauer. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association submits that properly interpreted Section 52 declarations are not governed by stare decisis, and as such, they cannot be relitigated, only appealed. We'll provide three reasons for this and hopefully answer some questions from this morning in the process. So, in terms of our three reasons, we begin with this interpretation best recognizes the singular nature of Section 52.1 and the wholly unique space it occupies within the Constitution's remedial framework. But perhaps second and, and more concretely, this interpretation best fits within this Court's existing Section 52 jurisprudence. This Court has repeatedly confirmed the effect of Section 52 declarations without qualifying that their full effect is limited to orders made in this court. Contrast this with the fact that the court has never endorsed the relitigation of Section 52 declarations. And we say, contrary to the submissions of AG uh, Ontario, that um, LABA potentially calls this relitigation absurdities in three consecutive paragraphs, 21 through 23. Indeed, if we want to go more recently, in this court's recent oral hearings in Mosinpur, there was a robust discussion of what Justice Rowe called the, quote, magic of a suspended declaration somehow terminating via the enactment of new legislation. Albeit in a different context, there was no discussion of that suspension ending by the declaration being overturned in a subsequent trial decision. And we say that's right. Declarations, along with the potentially accompanying suspensions and exemptions, should only be interfered with on appeal, not coordinate courts sitting in functional review. 
For this reason, we say interpreting Section 52 as barring relitigation best fits within this court's jurisprudence, and particularly its purposive approach to constitutional remedies recently articulated in G. The, pro- Indeed, the prosecution in uh, Province A, for its own reasons, chooses not to appeal a decision, and therefore the rest of the country is bound, even if the attorneys general in other provinces say, no, we want to litigate that, we, and, and, and we just, we're, just, we're just unable to get at it. I mean, that's a very, very odd consequence. It is odd. It is indeed, Justice Rowe, thank you for your question. It may be that this court determines a purposive approach to constitutional remedies and provincial autonomy demands an approach whereby those declarations would be limited in their effect provincially. The BCCLA, I know, will make further submissions on why a national effect is appropriate, but this court will have to balance that. We say the focus definitely should be on um, whether declarations can be relitigated within a province and we say I, I, I don't even no. understand I don't even understand what you mean by a purposive approach I mean you're you know, you're either constrained by your territorial jurisdiction or you're not Well so, I suppose what I mean by that is within a purposive approach this court could uh, this court could privilege provincial autonomy such that uh, declarations of invalidity would have uh, would be final within an individual province, but would not and would not have a national effect. We think certainly the uh, key purposes of uh, the supremacy clause and Section 52 would certainly support uh, an approach whereby Section 52 declarations. Yeah, but what, would what have about a if it's effect? clear that a decision is taken per, per incurium? I mean, the, it, it, you've got an off-the-wall decision, and for some reason, it's not appealed, but you can't get at it. I, I mean, the, the stare decisis operates so as to, to limit the relitigation of matters that are decided, but it doesn't put up impenetrable barriers where there are cogent reasons to, 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 to revisit a matter. I, I mean... There's a balance there, and you're saying the balance flies out the window. The first one who says it's invalid, that's it. End of the story. Well, uh, Justice Rowe, no, our alternative position would strike a different balance. So if this court were to find that that's that's the wrong balance and that effect is intolerable, uh, Chief Justice, I'm running out of time, if I might answer Justice Rowe's question and conclude. Thank you. If this court were to find that Section 52 declarations are better governed by stare decisis, we would, we would say that it must operate uniquely within that doctrine. And Justice Rowe, your, um, your questions this morning speaks to that, about the limited circumstances in which a judge of a coordinate jurisdiction would be permitted to depart from that uh, prior court's decision. And if it's governed by stare decisis, we would ask that it have three characteristics. First, that declarations of invalidity um, have the same effect whether made uh, at first instance in Superior Court or on summary conviction appeal, that the party seeking to overturn the declaration 
um, have a burden, both procedural, they need to raise it, and persuasive, they need to persuade the prior decision uh, ought to be departed from, and this burden should be onerous. And, and this goes to your concern, Justice Rowe, this morning about how there should be limited circumstances within the stare decisis in which a, uh, a prior declaration could, could be departed from. In, in conclusion, the CCLA urges that Section 52.1 properly interpreted bars relitigation of declarations. However, if this is not accepted, the worst of the adverse impacts from this, outlined in this court's decision in Ferguson, can still be avoided if Section 52 is found to operate singularly within the stare decisis doctrine. Thank you very Thank much. You. Mr. Opolsky. Good afternoon. In Canada and other common law jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and Australia, it has long been established that a declaration as a public law remedy ordered by a superior court that a law is invalid has binding force and effect across the country. It is the BCCLA's position that a declaration of unconstitutionality under Section 52 becomes a final, once it becomes a final order, can be given no lesser effect in this public law remedy. Stare decisis may govern the reasons for a declaration, but we cannot conflate reasons and remedy. And a declaration as a public law remedy has universal and binding effect. Okay, so the, the, the PEI Court of Appeal, on appeal, upholds a declaration of invalidity. The Ontario Court of Appeal can't even reconsider the matter, according to that. Is that the case? Justice Rowe, the question it's a has simple to have question. A I mean, is, is, is it a yes or is it a no? Justice Rowe, the, the temporal context is important here because we believe that this court has created tools to address these situations. If the cases are going up through Ontario and PEI at the same time, there's the ability to suspend the declaration from PEI for both decisions to go up and then hopefully come to this court in the event of a conflict. Um, but if the PEI is far out ahead of Ontario, for example, and there is the error, Justice Rowe, that you point out, a per curiam decision that they make a manifest error, I would hope then on application by the Attorney General of Canada in defending its own legislation, this court under Section 41 and, and LABA would take the case to correct it. There's always the remedy, there's also the remedy of a reference. From no, the no, 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 but you're saying that if it comes to this court, I'm saying the PEI Court of Appeal makes a decision, it's not appealed to this court, and, the, and that insulates it from consideration by Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, you name them all. Courts of Appeal. Yes, yes Justice Rowe, that's, that is exactly our position. Um, but it is our position that if you're considering issues like per incurium decisions, manifest errors, that I hope we can all agree would be rare coming from our Superior Court judges, but especially our Courts of Appeal, like the PEI Court of Appeal, then in that case, in the event of federal legislation, and, and this only applies to federal legislation, because federal legislation is the only legislation at issue that can apply to those residents of PEI and those residents of Ontario. In the event of that manifest error, the federal government, it would be, their onus would be on them to seek an appeal to this court or to bring a reference or to re-legislate. So let me just ask you, I just, I'm just going to rephrase the question. I just want to make sure that I understand you. Is it your position that in the fact scenario that Justice Rowe set to you, right? So statement from, let's change up the provinces a bit. Let's, let's say 
um, a, a decision of the Court of Appeal of Newfoundland and Labrador that is not appealed from that a judge of the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta would be bound by it. And, in fact, the Attorney General of Alberta is bound by it. Justice Brown, it is our opinion, our submission, that once there is a final declaration of invalidity, whether it's issued by the Court of Appeal in Newfoundland or the Superior Court of British Columbia, once that decision becomes final, it has national effect and it allows Canadians okay, and then absent the And then absent, just to carry it further, absent per incurium, um, that it can never be revisited in, in, in other litigation in another province. Well, it's it, just Brown, yes, and that is our position because okay, it has right. it is now is federal legislation that now has no force and effect. Um, should a Bedford situation come along and 20 years later the facts and circumstances be different, uh, the federal government would be free to re-legislate um, and seek a reference to to validate that. So we're that we're law. we're um, we're bound to the tender mercies of the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal and to the validity of its of its analysis until until Bedford is met down the road, times have changed. Right. Well, Brown, I have a lot of faith in the Court of Appeal of Newfoundland Labrador. Oh, I do too. But, but more than that, <laughs> it, it, we're talking about federal legislation. Them. So if there is, there is a, a proceeding which seeks to invalidate federal legislation, we ask that the federal government take that proceeding as seriously as Section 52 contemplates. And if there is a per incurium error or another error, then they seek a remedy from that court. They can't just leave it out there. They would have to seek leave to appeal to this court and convince this court there is such an error. Uh, Chief Justice, I, I see that I'm out of time. May I have 30 seconds to conclude? Yes, please. Go ahead. Ultimately, uh, it, well, we refer you to our factum on the majority of our points, including rule of law. But ultimately, where we come down is this is a question of public law, the role of the superior courts, and the rule of law. Declarations of a long history in Canadian public law is an effective tool to bind all as to what is and is not the law, and there is no reason that Section 52 does any less. The superior courts are, as this court called them, the primary guardians of this rule. This court, nor any appeal court, has no monopoly on Section 52. If the Crown does not appeal, there is no reason that the declaration should not be given the effect provided by the plain words of the Constitution, which is that the law has no force and effect for all Canadians. Thank you, Chief Justice. And thank, you, thank you very much. Lindsay Davieux. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, Chief Justice, Justices, the CLA adopts the submissions of the respondent and the intervener for the CCLA and the BCLA. Uh, and in my limited time here today, I have uh, one submission to offer the court. Uh, for the remainder, I will rely on my factum. Uh, and that is under Section 1, the purpose of Section 33.1 is not minimally impairing to the charter rights in issue, uh, and specifically that the deleterious effects of the legislation are uh, disproportionate to the objectives of Section 33.1 and the salutary effects. Uh, I intend to focus uh, my submission uh, on uh, those uh, who neither intended their actions or could never have contemplated the result of their intoxication. Uh, both Sullivan and Chan 
are illustrative of the overarching reach of the provision. Uh, as it stands, it uh, captures an accused who consumed the intoxicant with the intention to die, uh, as was the case in Sullivan, or an accused who chooses to consume an intoxicant but suffers a reaction well outside of what one might have expected, as was the case in Chan. Uh, the severity of uh, what I call the deleterious impact on the category of people who are less significantly less morally blameworthy than those who are in control of their faculties when they commit offenses is perhaps recognized by the appellant when they suggest that this court ought to read in a marked departure test uh, so as to reel in the, the net and lessen the impact on those whose consumption of the intoxicant was perhaps for a valid purpose, uh, whatever that purpose might be. And while the appellant has asked this court to read in a marked departure test that would purport to lessen the impact on that category of individuals or on a category of individuals where uh, they suggest it might not, the result might not be foreseeable, my respectful submission is that's not what a plain reading of the section contemplates. And that a plain reading of the section is that it would capture anyone who ingests any substance that causes them to be an automaton, uh, which is consistent with Justice LaBelle's comments in um, Bouchard-Lebrun. But beyond the examples of uh, Mr. Chan and Mr. Sullivan uh, in their own right, uh, the impact of the section could also disproportionately punish those individuals who are suffering from mental illness, uh, those with addiction issues, those who have been marginalized and who in no way intended the consequences of their actions, either intoxication or the offense for which they've been charged. Uh, my respectful submission on behalf of the CLA is such a deleterious effect uh, cannot be, uh, is, is, sits far outside the objectives of the legislation. Um, I, I would further submit that uh, the appellant's attempt to differentiate between certain intoxicants is also troublesome in this regard, uh, that someone who, uh, who drinks alcohol might never foresee the risk of rendering themselves an automaton and uh, committing serious acts of violence, while someone who consumes crystal meth, that might be a foreseeable risk. Uh, my respectful submission is that... Um, First of all, to read that into the section uh, is difficult, if not impossible, given the uh, plain reading of what the section says. But certainly, um, the circumstances for each individual accused might dictate that, that such consequences might not be inevitable or foreseeable, or even that they are of significant risk. Uh, I would further submit that when looking and balancing the deleterious effects against the salutary effects, the, uh, there are less uh, intrusive reasonable alternatives. Parliament could enact, and uh, this uh, Davio stands for this proposition, as did the, uh, the Law Reform Commission, that Parliament could have chosen to enact a standalone offense of extreme intoxication causing violence. Um, however, Parliament could also do nothing and allow the common law... Well, that's, that's kind of a, I mean, with, with respect, that, that argument doesn't get very far. I mean, if doing nothing is an option we're going to look at, then every law is going to be overbroad because doing nothing is, is less. 
I, I appreciate that. Uh, however, no, <laughs> in this case, uh, Davio has um, has uh, established that the defense is a reverse onus defense that require, which places my respectful submission is a heavy burden on accused person who wishes to raise uh, the defense of Section 33.1. Uh, expert evidence uh, is not uh, is not a low requirement. Certainly. Um, the Crown would receive notice of that expert evidence and they'd be entitled to call their own experts. My respectful submission is, uh, given the Davio decision, uh, doing nothing does not amount to having nothing been done, given it's a reverse onus uh, defense uh, and, and the subject matter uh, that, that the, when, when an accused would want a result of this is, is, is very rare indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. The Empowerment Council represents the interests of people with addictions and mental health issues, including those who have been found NCR and those who use illicit substances. I'd like to address one of the issues in Mr. Chan's cross appeal, in which he asks this court to consider the scope of the NCR verdict. And then if time permits, I'll address one of the Crown's submissions in its appeal um, with respect to the interpretation of section 33.1. The Empowerment Council's position is that uh, this court should be very cautious not to expand the NCR regime when applying and interpreting the test in Bouchard-Lebrun. We say that for two reasons. First, because of the impact this may have on persons already in the NCR system. This court has recognized, including most recently in G, uh, that NCR accused are subject to a double stigma. The stigma of dangerousness associated with being found NCR and that associated with mental disorder in general. That prejudice is undeserved. Many people come under the NCR system because of low level nonviolent offenses. And the Empowerment Council is concerned that opening the gates to more people who have committed offenses of violence but who don't have the mitigating factor of underlying mental illness will contribute to prejudice and stereotyping of NCR accused, that it will heighten the association between NCR and brutality and dangerousness. Secondly, the Empowerment Council is concerned about NCR being expanded to include people for whom it isn't designed and who may be ill-served by it. Because although an NCR verdict is uh, relief from criminal responsibility for people who should not be held criminally liable, that relief comes at a cost. It means indefinite detention in hospital, indefinite supervision and restrictions on liberty, often for years, sometimes for decades. And the way out of that system is by treatment treatment is generally what diminishes risk so that the accused can be gradually reintegrated into the community. When someone has experienced a single episode of primarily drug-induced psychosis, the link to underlying mental disorder may be missing or unclear. Um, for those persons, there is no clear path out of the system. It's designed and geared towards 
the treatment of people with mental disorder. It's not designed uh, to manage other kinds of risk. So for people who should not be criminally liable for other reasons, uh, in our submission, the law must devise a different solution. I'll move now to make one point uh, about the Crown Appeal and the Crown's proposed interpretation of Section 33.1 uh, as including a requirement of reasonable foreseeability. We take issue with how the Crown would apply that standard of reasonable foreseeability, assuming that it can be found in the provision. The Crown asks this court to find that all illegal substances carry a foreseeable risk of extreme intoxication. The Empowerment Council urges this court to reject that submission. Uh, it's inflammatory and it's without basis in evidence. The legal standard status of a substance is not in our submission a reliable stand-in for risk. Uh, if the standard is reasonable foreseeability, Courts are well equipped to determine on a case-by-case -case basis whether that standard is met with regard to the known effects of the substance, the manner and circumstances of its consumption. Finally, I want to um, circle back to the, the exchange between Justice Moldaver and Ms. Giuseppe about whether psychosis is akin to a loaded gun. Uh, Ms. Giuseppe drew a distinction between a risk of psychosis and a risk of psychosis with violence. The Empowerment Council would underscore that a risk of psychosis uh, does not equal a risk of becoming dangerous and violent. This court cautioned us in Winko that these beliefs are based on stigma about mental illness. And Winko tells us that persons with symptoms of mental illness, including psychosis, are not presumptively dangerous. Thank you. Thank you very much. Connor Blufeld. Chief Justice, Justices, Advocates for the Rule of Law intervenes on the nature and effect of a Section 52 declaration of a superior court. In our written submissions, we explain why the text of Section 52, the Constitution's remedial scheme, and the rule of law dictate that a Section 52 declaration of a superior court removes the impugned law from the books subject to appeal. The point I wish to address in my oral submissions, however, is why superior courts must exercise care and restraint in granting such a significant order. And the reason is simple. One shouldn't use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. The principle of judicial min minimalism enjoins judges to go no further than necessary to resolve the dispute before them. Mr. Binfeld, you say, you say that such a declaration um, removes the law from the books, yes. but you limit that removal to the province in which uh, the declaration has been uh, made. Yes, Justice Cote, that's correct. And the reason why that effect is limited to the particular province is that the effect of a Section 52 declaration is constrained by the federal system established by the Constitution. Within that system, the law within one province can and often does differ from the law in another province. And in fact, a single federal law may have different meanings in different provinces. And for authority on that, I can direct you to Wolf and the Queen. Uh, and the citation for that is 1975 2SCR 
107 at pages 108 and 109. So accordingly, a federal law may have a different meaning and we would submit a different status in different provinces. Well, I can, now, I can I, see I that added, as an interim, yes. an interim or, or situation. I'm not sure it's, it's particularly desirable in the long term. And I think that the establishment of the Supreme Court of Canada in 1876 was meant to resolve such matters on a definitive basis for the whole country, but within a hierarchy of courts. I, I agree with that, Justice Rowe. And, and if you look to the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Wolf at page 109, it says the only required uniformity among provincial appellate courts is that which is the result of the decisions of this court. And they're referring to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so I agree, Justice Rowe, that the, this court's role is to be the pinnacle of the judicial hierarchy and to, the, and to settle the law across Canada. The role of provincial superior courts is not the same, and therefore it cannot have the same effect as this court's declarations would have. So unless there are any further questions on that point, I'll return to my submissions on uh, judicial minimalism. And we say that a superior court should not grant a formal Section 52 declaration unless three conditions are met, which I will turn to in just a moment. If these three conditions are not met, but a superior court nonetheless finds it necessary to consider a law's constitutionality, we say it can do so in its reasons without granting a formal Section 52 declaration, just as provincial courts do, as outlined by this court in Regina and Lloyd. The first condition is that the, the applicant must expressly seek a Section 52 declaration and satisfy all applicable notice requirements. Those notice requirements are set out in laws across Canada. They require anyone seeking to challenge a law's constitutionality to serve a notice of constitutional question on the relevant attorney general. These laws prohibit the court from determining the question unless and until that notice has been served, and they give the Attorney General a right to be heard and a right to appeal. As this court stated in Gwinden in Canada, these notice requirements, quote, serve a vital purpose in ensuring that courts have a full evidentiary record before invalidating legislation, and that governments are given the fullest opportunity to support the validity of the legislation. The second condition is that a Superior Court should not grant a Section 52 declaration unless necessary to resolve the dispute before it. Accordingly, if the court can resolve the dispute before it on other grounds, so for example, statutory construction, it should do so. This posture of judicial restraint and humility recognizes that unnecessary constitutional pronouncements can have far-reaching and sometimes unforeseen effects. And third, as the text of Section 52 indicates, a court may grant a Section 52 declaration only if the impugned law is inconsistent with the Constitution. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. In reply, Ms. Barrett. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. If I could start with uh, providing a reference in response to uh, Mr a question Justice Jamal asked about whether or not the trial judge uh, considered whether the Wellbutrin was uh, brought on by the suicide um, 
cause the suicide attempt? Uh, the answer to that is found in the uh, trial judge's sentencing reasons, which are at tab, uh, tab two of vol volume one of our record. The trial judge was satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the overdose was voluntary. And I, I would say it's also important to note that in sentencing Mr. Sullivan, the trial judge treated this as a neutral factor, and you will find that at volume one, uh, tab two, page 44 of the record, and that's because Mr. Sullivan is someone who had abused drugs for most of his adult life and sought no treatment whatsoever, uh, and this, again, someone who had experienced two uh, prior episodes of psychosis where he required hospitalization. Turning to Mr. Chan's request for a remedy, it's important to note that both NCR and an acquittal under Davio are both reverse onus defenses that require expert uh, evidence in support of them. And the expert evidence in this case was that Mr. Chan was not an automaton, that delusional minds are capable of conscious volitional acts. That's in Dr. Klassen's evidence. Both psychiatrists testified that but for the magic mushrooms, Mr. Chen's psychosis would not have happened. And the psychiatrists also testified that magic mushrooms will cause psychosis in everyone at a certain dose. And we know that Mr. Chen was the only one to take a second dose that evening. The trial judge relied on this evidence to find that Mr. Chen's psychosis was temporary. It coincided directly with the timeline of his intoxication. That's paragraph 134 of the reasons. His psychosis is not at risk of reoccurrence without future drug use. That's paragraphs 138 and 139 of the reasons and nor is he in need of any treatment. A substituted verdict is simply unavailable on this record. This is no different from Bouchard-Lebrun, which we say is dispositive. If one reads Bouchard-Lebrun, you will see that it directs that when psychosis emerges during an intoxicating episode, courts should start from the presumption that it is not a mental disorder. Can I just ask you a question about that, please, Ms. Barrett? I just want to understand this. If reasonable foreseeability is a prerequisite, and whether it's in the section or not, but if it is, how do we deal with a case like Mr. Chan? Um, does he just run a risk by taking two hits of this stuff, or <clears throat> does he have to have knowledge of pharmacological effects of, you know, these magic mushrooms? I mean, how do we know the reasonable foreseeability here? Does, or, you know, is the onus on him, or is it on you to show reasonable foreseeability? Well, I would say, uh, Justice Muldaver, that you... Uh, relying on the framework in Bouchard-Lebrun, which is critical for maintaining the mutual exclusivity of the two defenses, you start from the presumption 
uh, that it is not a mental disorder. So it, the onus then would be on Mr. Chan uh, to argue somehow that this was um, not a marked departure. If one considers that one in five of the general population, and I believe this is a widely uh, known fact, one in five of the general population uh, suffers from mental health issues, there are a lot of people with concurrent disorders. Um, a lot of people who will be, rightly or wrongly, taking intoxicants that may or may not lead to psychosis. And it's for that reason that Bouchard Lebrun spoke of how a cautious re uh, approach is required in these cases. They are difficult cases, and the courts need a framework uh, to work through the analysis, and Bouchard Lebrun provides that. And an application of Bouchard Lebrun to these facts, um, we say, is dispositive. Uh, and the trial judge did a, a meticulous application of that analysis and found that Mr. Chen's psychosis tracked um, the timeline of his intoxication. So paragraph 91 of Bouchard Lebrun tells us that where the psychosis is a direct extension of the intoxication, that is not a mental disorder. All right. Yes, another question. Thank you. Could you please address Ms. Robito's uh, statement that this court would have the ability to enter a stay based on, my paraphrase, the prejudice caused by forcing Mr. Chan to raise uh, an NCR defense because of the unavailability of what they say is an unconstitutional limitation on the automatism defense? Thank you, Justice Martin. In my submission, 695 has been used um, for ancillary orders. This would fall or stretch the concept of ancillary orders to um, grant a stay. The, the same findings of fact at a new trial would warrant a conviction. And there is a critical distinction between Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Chan. And that critical distinction is that the trial judge in Chan found that the essential elements were made out. Mr. Sullivan is a classic automatism defense where he claims that he went to the kitchen and then the next memory he has is waking up in hospital. That tracks Parks and all of the automatism cases dealing with unconscious behavior. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to thank all the attorneys for the your submissions, the court will take the case under advisement and the court is adjourned till tomorrow morning at uh, 9.30. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.